And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, depending upon whatever the case may be, wherever you are on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight. Well, our long um, kind of uh, E.T. soap opera has a new uh, entry tonight in the sweepstakes of which show is going to be the more interesting, the more far out, the more exotic, the more strange. Um, We've got some tales to tell this morning, and we've got some data. And both are absolutely fascinating. So um, kind of, you know, get your snacks ready. You know, if you got to go to the kitchen, pick up something, bring it back. You know, or if you're in a car and you want to focus, pull over and listen carefully because For the next three hours, we're going to regale you with some amazing new results in the continuing soap opera, Who is the Other Side of Midnight Really Talking To? In terms of the uh, Baofeng Radio, the two magic frequencies of 144.1 megahertz and 432 megahertz. And as you know, last week... um, We had planned to actually do these shows uh, tonight and tomorrow night, last Saturday and Sunday night, but uh, the gremlins struck and we had a major power outage here and then I didn't get internet back for a while. And anyway, it's all very boring uh, housekeeping. The good news is tonight everything is working and we've had another additional several days to analyze the data and we're going to knock your socks off with what you're going to hear in terms of what is being communicated But the outstanding mystery, which maybe you can help us answer, is just who the heck are we talking to? I'm beginning to wonder if we're not talking to some kind of automated Bracewell probe type AI, except an AI which is removed from us by literally thousands, if not tens, of thousands of years and before you say I want whatever he's smoking listen to the next three hours because you're going to see and hear some data which is it's just mind-boggling and at the moment it's kind of inexplicable there are some things we believe we have nailed down some confirmations of the model but there's new mysteries which have been revealed And then tomorrow night, we're going to do part two of this. We're going to talk about how we intend within the next week, within the next seven days, to answer the new mysteries, which, of course, are going to open up more mysteries. And that's what science is. You, you know, open up like 10 new ones for every one you solve. But uh, be that as it may, we are on we are on the hunt. As Sherlock Holmes would have said, the game's afoot. So we're going to pursue this however and wherever and how far out into God knows where it leads. Before we get to all that, however, let me let me bring you up to date on some some relevant news items. If you are new to the show, you want to go to the other side of midnight dot com. That's our homepage. That's our URL. The other side of midnight dot com. Click on tonight's banner which says very boldly against a backdrop, another backdrop that I've 
been archiving for many, many years of Stonehenge, the inner sanctum, the inner uh, trilophons and, and beyond. At, I think that is sunset. I'm not quite sure, but I think that's a sunset shot. Anyway, it says the Stonehenge ET transmissions, first results, part one for Saturday, February 12th. So click on that. That will take you to the guest page. And right under the guest page, it says uh, fast links to items. Click on my name and that will take you to my section down the page of Radio with Pictures. Item number one. This has kind of been a standard feature for the last uh, several shows, maybe, you know, since, well, since just after Christmas when the Webb Space Telescope was successfully launched from French Guiana and spent weeks and weeks and weeks traveling to a distant point in space, actually a volume, an area, about a million miles behind the Earth away from the sun, called the Lagrange II position. Named, as you might imagine, uh, for a French mathematician who did the calculations of where these uh, stable regions of the Earth-Sun system hang out, and this is the second of the five points that he mathematically mapped out. So Webb is now there, orbiting in a period of about six months in an elliptical orbit around nothing. I mean, I saw a, a kind of a, 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 a wag on Twitter the other day said, how can Webb, the Webb telescope be orbiting nothing? Well, because it's kind of like a balance of forces. So it's moving like it's in an orbit, but it isn't really in an orbit. It's more like a, um, um, a cyclic pendulum motion uh, in the uh, balanced gravitational fields of sun and earth. And um, all planets have these regions of stabilities. Even moons have regions of stability if they're orbiting a primary like the Earth's moon orbiting the Earth has an L2 point, an L1 point, an L4, an L5, an L3, and they're geometrically identical to the uh, uh, layout of the bigger L points for the Earth-Sun system. But of course, they are oriented on the moon as opposed to the Earth. Be that as it may, about uh, two and a half months ago, it was December 25th when this amazing telescope was launched. Um, it's been cruising. It was cruising out to the L2 point. They maneuvered it with thrusters, so it now is orbiting stably in the elliptical orbit that takes it about as far away from the center of the L2 region as the moon is from Earth, but out to a distance from the L2 region of something like almost uh, 800,000 miles. That's you know over three quarters of a million miles. So this is a very large halo orbit. It's very leisurely. It takes about six months for Webb to make that transit, and it's constantly changing um, in space because uh, because of the moving primaries and secondaries and the moving gravitational fields. No two orbits are identical. So if you could see it, time lapse series of um, uh, you know spirals in space it would appear to be a very complex set of what are called lazoo curves. And you can look it up on Google 
and get an image and you'll see how complex the celestial mechanics of keeping Webb on station actually are. Anyway, item number one, um, a couple of days ago, after the telescope was opened up to receive you know, light, actually, infrared photons, they announced that they had passed uh, successfully into the instrument, uh, the infrared instrument, which is going to be one of the primary cameras of the uh, telescope. And they had detected energy from space, from a star. Uh, a couple of days ago, they took uh, images of all 18 mirrors that are focusing light um, into the detectors. And if you look at item number one, that photograph is the geometry of how misaligned these separate 18 telescopes actually are. Except it's too, I mean, there's something really weird about this because we've been hearing for weeks and weeks that when they get first light, meaning the light comes through the telescope, we're going to see 18 images of 18 stars, which is the same star, but through 18 separate mirrors. And it will be kind of arrayed in a random splash across the detector. If you look at that photograph to the right of the caption, that does not look like a random array of mirrors just pointing haphazardly in any old direction. I mean, there appears to be geometry to that set of 18 separate images of stars, almost like someone preset the mirrors. So when the first starlight was received, what Earth would get in the way of a telemetry transmission image is the geometry replicated through those 18 separate hexagonal mirrors, a geometry which it just looks too regular to be random. And yet I, 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 I mean, in one way, it looks kind of like a Christmas tree. In another way, it kind of looks like the head of some kind of ancient sea serpent. In, in other words, you can play this game forever. It just doesn't appear to be 18 random images of a star imaged by the misaligned 18 hexagonal separate telescopes making up the James Webb Space Telescope. Now, would I put or project some kind of um, hidden messaging for NASA to do this? Well, you're damn right I would, because they do it every time they have a chance anywhere else. So why not with, with Webb? If anybody out there recognizes this geometry, and you'll have to do a little homework, um, send me an email or send me a, a, a message through the contact section of, of the website, because frankly, that does not look like a random spread of, you know, just just mathematically Gaussian blurred imagery that one would get in terms of what NASA has been telling us. And of course, uh, where have we heard that before? Item number two, this is a very reliable site. This is the uh, Where is the Web site from NASA, which shows you details of the instrument cooling and 
what the temperatures are and where they are in their timeline and, you know, all, all very good stuff, okay? So if you click on number one, that's the blog. That is a really informative piece, very carefully written article by one of the project uh, people as to how they're aligning the telescope. But that image of the first 18 uh, sub-images from the 18 hexagon, hexagonal mirrors, that just, I don't know. It's, there's something, I keep thinking, I know this, I know this, yet I can't consciously remember what it's supposed to be. Um, if you can help, please have at it. Item number three. Uh, you may have heard this week that um, Elon Musk tried launching another contingent, um, 49 additional satellites of his Starlink fleet, which will ultimately be comprised of tens of thousands of separate 500-plus pound spacecraft orbiting the Earth like a swarm of gnats orbiting a uh, uh, you know lighted lamp on a late summer evening. And they will provide global satellite service to very basic and minimal and low-cost receivers ultimately anywhere on Earth, including the poles, the Amazon jungle, the middle of the Sahara. These are all places, of course, that have huge audiences, right? Yeah, right. The point is that if you're anywhere on Earth, you'll be able to pick up satellite-level transmissions, broadband transmissions, but, and this is really, really important, his system, which has received an awful lot of weird criticism uh, based on what I'm going to tell you in a moment, his system completely bypasses all the potential problems of 5G. I mean, for those of you who don't know what 5G is, it's a higher frequency transmission in the millimeter range that must be broadcast on Earth from towers spaced throughout urban areas and throughout the countryside, ultimately thousands of new towers spewing out this very short wavelength high-energy EM radiation, which from some experiments is not good for biology. But that's where the commercial carriers have decided to go, and God help us politically if uh, politicians would interfere with someone making many, many, many billions more dollars off the uh, global consumer. Enter Elon Musk, because what Elon is doing is placing his towers in orbit. And the reason that's a good thing is because the standard 5G ultra-high-frequency, very small millimeter-sized wavelength 5G carrier signals that they're normally talking about, they don't go more than a few miles from an antenna before the Earth's atmosphere absorbs the signal. Well, how do you build a commercial platform on that? Answer, you got to have a lot of towers. You got to have a lot of transmitters. You have to bathe the earth in more high-frequency EM radiation, which, as Carl would have said many years ago, is not good for beagles or begonias. So here's where Musk's brilliance comes in, because Musk's satellite system does not use these dangerous short wavelengths. Why? Because he can't. He has a spacecraft several hundred miles up, three, 
300, 350 miles up, broadcasting to a home pizza-sized antenna uh, mounted on somebody's roof, okay? In order to get that signal from the satellite to the receiver, to the dish on your roof, it's got to be a wavelength low enough to penetrate the Earth's ionosphere and 100 miles of Earth's atmosphere, which means the wavelengths are much longer. They're not dangerous. They're what have been used for decades. We have a large amount of medical data showing that these frequencies are not dangerous. So what Musk is trying to do is to economically make 5G obsolete in the marketplace, not by legislation, which we can't get, by mandates, which we can't get, not by preemptive, you know, executive orders, which we can't get, but by the economics of it's cheaper to subscribe to Musk's system than it is to the proposed and in some places fully installed 5G networks now being unveiled. And it's very interesting that with this in mind, we look at story number three. Because a few days ago, as part of his Starlink fleet launches, he had launched something like 49 additional satellites of the Starlink constellation, which will ultimately cover every square inch of the planet at some point, and you'll be handing off. You won't know this, of course, because your call or your text or your emails or your videos will go seamlessly from satellite to satellite, um, and you won't know the switching is going on. But this network actually can send data from spacecraft to spacecraft by means of lasers. So the whole network, imagine if you had all those little, you know, fireflies orbiting around a lamppost and every one of them was talking to every other firefly while simultaneously talking to you, blinking in code. That's kind of like what Musk's, you know, Starlink fleet of unmanned spacecraft are going to be doing to subvert and to supplant the 5G system. Well, a few days ago, he launched his next batch of satellites, adding to the constellation already up there, which is a few thousand satellites. And something bizarre happened. The sun hiccuped, at least this is what we're told, and 40 of the 49 spacecraft that had just been launched, part of this Starlink fleet, promptly re-entered the Earth's atmosphere and burned up because, in fact, well, not promptly, but I mean, they've been doing it over the last several days because when the sun hiccuped, when it created two geomagnetic storms back-to-back, spaced about a day apart, what happened was the upper atmosphere of the Earth was heated from this solar activity, which was not planned, not forecast, was unexpected. The models didn't cover it. And by heating an atmosphere, you inflate it. It's like, you know, pumping air into a tire. Um, And what that does is cause the atmosphere to expand. Well, the satellites in their deployment phase initially orbit so low to the ground, only about 130 miles upstairs, that they're subject to um, air resistance, even at that altitude, if the atmosphere around them is suddenly very different and somewhat significantly denser than it was predicted to be. So in essence, this geomagnetic storm, two of them back to back, did in 
40 of the satellites that that uh, Musk had just launched as part of his growing and expanding Starlink constellation. Now, there are some people out there who are pointing to this and saying, oh, that's a cover story. That's an excuse. Somebody shot them down as a message to Musk, don't, don't build the system. And normally, I would think that's a kind of a weird, bizarre, amazing, far out, un, unbelievable, inconceivable conspiracy theory. <clears throat> Except, look what Musk is trying to do in a very elegant way. Look at the opposition. Look at the comments. If you read that story, and then you go to the bottom, you'll see comments. There's an awful lot of muskaters out there that are using this as a kind of a bandwagon to jump on and talk about uh, why his ideas are crazy and they'll never work. And this, of course, uh, from someone who's successfully landed rockets back on their launching pads, um, has built the largest rocket ever known, which is about to be launched in its first orbital flight from Texas, who has sent a wonderful, beautiful little red roadster into an orbit of the sun that reaches beyond the orbit of Mars. You know, this is a guy who just, you know, and he's he's running the first commercial taxi service between Earth and the International Space Station, uh, supplanting the fact that we are no longer dependent on the Russians to get us to our own space station. I mean, here's a guy, he's all, you know, as they used to say in Texas, all uh, hat and no cattle. Not, so why is he getting such enmity for what could be billed as an act of God? Unless maybe it wasn't the sun. Maybe something else is going on. I just want to point that out, that, you know, we should look at even the most exotic theories these days, because if you haven't noticed, we are living 24-7 in the other side of midnight land where normally in this time slot, you know, only people like me and Art and George would hold forth with ideas that could not possibly be true, except a lot of them are. And they've now spread 24-7 around the world. And the most insane, cockamamie, outrageous, outlandish, you wouldn't believe that if someone swore on your mother's grave are happening almost every single day and are being covered by the mainstream news media nonstop 24-7. And it's only going to get weirder, which leads me to item number four. We're going to be talking tonight about something that's really weird, which started out uh, on this uh, network as a kind of a very tentative experiment, which was uh, about two months ago. We got a bunch of people together, and with the help of David Sarita and Jimmy Blanchett, we were able to create a coded message, which we transmitted for about a month of weekends to a distant fleeing interstellar visitor called Muamua. The idea was, since apparently nobody else had tried to transmit to this interstellar anomaly, what if we transmitted to something that actively could receive the signal and then answer us? Since it had never been done, at least as far as we know, we figured, what do we got to lose? 
So we did it beginning on December 4th as a test. And we've now been involved nonstop in receiving, recording, and decoding the most bizarre set of transmissions, radio transmissions, that anybody has ever picked up on radio, except maybe for some names that you might have heard of, uh, if nowhere else, certainly on this show, with uh, guys with names like Marconi and Tesla, who picked up something very similar, if not identical, back in the teens and 20s and 30s of the 20th century. And they said forthrightly, both of them separately, Marconi and Tesla, that they had picked up signals that they believed came from somewhere beyond the Earth, from somewhere in interplanetary, if not more distant, space. Now, flash forward the film to December 4th of 2021. No sooner had we begun from Jimmy Blanchett's uh, radio telescope antenna to be broadcasting our uh, pre-recorded transmission on a set of key so-called sacred frequencies in the direction of the Muamua, which at that moment was two and a half billion miles from Earth, an invisible speck in the dark, no way even to be detectable by any technology known on Earth, not even the world's most powerful telescopes. And um, did, I, did I say February 4th? I, I actually meant December 4th. For some reason, we have a penchant for the 4th, okay? Anyway, so it was December 4th, before Christmas, that we started this. And as soon as the transmission was begun from northern Arizona, the um, antenna system was visited by six or seven objects with geometry looking for all the world like spacecraft popping in and out of, of hyperspace, photobombing the region of the sky that was being looked at uh, with the camera sighted along the antenna aiming point. And so we know that somebody with high-tech spacecraft received the transmission and hours before it could have been broadcast back from a Muamua, two and a half billion miles way out there in the dark, they kept popping in and out of our reality, demonstrating A, faster than light transmission, B, the fact that they were not limited to conventional Newtonian mechanics of rockets and things like that, C, the existence of a hyperdimensional reality, because they didn't move across space, they literally popped in for a second or two and then popped out, meaning they appeared from some place else. Substitute the word dimension for place, and you kind of got what I'm trying to communicate. Point is, that was the beginning of this extraordinary, ongoing, deepening, broadening, and growing ever more mysterious um, conundrum that we're involved in, which is, okay, we're sending signals, we're getting answers, where are the answers coming from, and who in the world is actually answering us in terms of three dimensions? So as part of phase two of our efforts to figure this out, we positioned an intrepid researcher named Maria, Maria Wheatley, 
in the center of a place called Stonehenge. And two weeks ago, I'm sorry, a week ago, February 4th, Maria began a series of transmissions and then recordings that were to, shall we say, deepen, broaden, and expand the mystery because it turns out that, again, someone answered and we're not exactly sure who it was. When we come back, Maria Wheatley, in person, will describe her journey and adventure in transmitting a signal to potential ETs from the center of Stonehenge. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. from the beginning, uh, if you look back through English history, the common law and equity both developed under different systems. Right. The common law was originally always the, the original system of law which was biblically based. And it was handed down orally from person to person over the years because there wasn't any, any printing press or writing until the Middle Ages, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas equity, however, what would happen is the common law at that time was extremely strict. Yeah. <laughs> and most people fail to to realize the uh, the strictness. For, and I know, for example, um, one criminal charge sometimes can take four or five pages to lay it out of everyone. And if you missed a, a, a dotting an I, you the, the guy could have the charge thrown out. So what developed was eventually people who thought that the common law was too harsh would petition the king for redress. And then the queen, king I should say, or queen, would 
determined if they were going to have mercy on him and what they were going to do. Um, sometimes they were thrown to the wind and said, too bad, you're out of luck. Other times they would get redressed. And what would happen as more and more people started going to the king, he couldn't handle the workload. So he appointed it to the chancellor. Mm-hmm. And that he started doing it, which then became the court of chancery or equity. And of course, a number of principles developed in equity, I think there's 12 or 13 of them now, um, that developed over the years where it basically was a, uh, a separate form of, of law based on fairness and various principles that developed parallel to the common law. And then early in the 1900s, they were fused into one court because you had different courts, common law and you had equity. And they fused them into one court where the same court would apply both systems of law. And if there was a conflict, and only if there was a conflict, the common law would prevail. Hi, I'm David Kevin Lindsay from Canada. And I would urge everybody to be able to support the other side of the news. With the news media all over the world essentially promoting the government narrative on virtually every issue out there, everybody needs an alternative source of accurate, truthful information. And the other side of the news provides that information, that source of information from a variety of speakers all over the world with personal knowledge and experience that they can share with everybody in over 160 countries that they're involved and that they go to, to show everybody in the world what they are doing to support and encourage everybody else to also stand up for freedom issues throughout the world. I would urge everybody on a regular basis to listen and support the other side of the news. This Saturday, February 12th, 2022. God, we're already in the second month. Middle of the month of the second month of 2022. Part of the explanation for what we're receiving, because of the structure of the radio signals, what we call the chirps, which appear to be compressed. So when you broaden them out and lower the frequency, you can see incredible detailed structure within the highly compressed packet which is what you hear as you're going to hear again tonight on the the other side of midnight one of the other possibilities is that we're getting transmission literally across dimensions in which case if time is malleable and it flows at different rates in different dimensions we may be hearing signals 
that if they start out from back to front there are literally time reversed and we're hearing them we're receiving them as front to back here in other words we know we're getting something we know it's intelligent we know it's designed but we don't know a where it's really coming from and b we don't know who is responding to our calls which of course is why we're doing a program on this this morning because we have the benefit of Marie Wheatley being with us Maria is a dowsing expert she's an archaeologist her father was a well-known archaeologist in Britain she is well versed in megalithic monuments and ley lines and different forms of energy that are Uh, accepted and discussed in uh, mainstream scientific circles. She is very familiar with our uh, hyperdimensional model, and a lot of what she has put together over the years matches the predictions of the HD model in an exquisite degree, up to and including the fact that if she were to stand in Stonehenge in this ancient, ancient thousands of years old stone set of ancient circles something of a hyperdimensional communications nature could in fact happen and it did Okay, so Maria, I want you to start out on Friday morning as you're getting up and getting ready, and I want you to tell us what your thoughts were, what your anticipations were, and then kind of walk us through what they say in the news business, a uh, TikTok of what you did, where you did it, what happened when you did it, and ultimately what happened overall for you on that memorable Friday morning of February 4th when you transmitted to someone from the center of Stonehenge. Yes, well, to begin with, uh, the weather wasn't clement. It was sleeting, it was raining, it was freezing cold. And where Stonehenge is sited on the Salisbury Plain, it's on elevated ground. So whatever the temperature is in the valleys, it's much, much colder on the Salisbury Plain. So it was a freezing cold uh, day to, uh, to begin with. And Stonehenge, we know, is surrounded by military establishments. And about a mile away is the closest one. It's called Lark Hill. And the other important military establishment, about five miles to seven miles from Stonehenge, is porting down our nuclear biological testing center. Uh, and they were active on that day. That means when you go along the Salisbury Plain, you see red flags flying everywhere. And that means there's live am- ammunition being fired <laughs> and that you're and that you're not to turn whatever direction the red flag is flying, you mustn't turn onto the plane that way. So if it's flying on the red on the right hand side, you don't turn right. So that's the setting. As I drove in with uh, with my colleague, we were noticing that it was called an active day on the plane. 
Uh, so we were acknowledging that. And um, Stonehenge, uh, as we know, has many different phases. And I started to begin the journey by going into Stonehenge. We didn't have the uh, normal spiel by English Heritage. They just let us go straight in because the weather was so bad. You don't want to hang around for 20 minutes listening to somebody <laughs> speak. Grief. Yeah, they're their usual um, spiel that is incorrect about dates and everything anyway. So we started off by uh, transmitting 15 minutes beforehand as we were approaching Stonehenge on the bus, because you have to take a bus now to Stonehenge from the visitor center to the actual site. So that's when I first started the, uh, the transmissions. Then when I got to Stonehenge, uh, I found what's called Aubrey Hole number one. And Aubrey Hole number one was the first phase of Stonehenge, and it was a stone circle of 56 highly polished bluestones. And like I mentioned on the radio before, the first stone to be placed into Stonehenge was in the ground. Uh, so uh, we've got a big quartz stone in the ground, and the bluestone number one was placed above that. And that's where I began to start transmitting. It was very uh, interesting, really, because there wasn't really a problem in all of our tests that we did previously with uh, the radio uh, receiver device. But when I started to go away from the Aubrey holes, approaching the sanctity of Stonehenge itself, that's when the equipment started to jiggle around a little bit. Uh, it was it started to flash on and off, for example, and my phone was uh, behaving a little bit oddly. So I put them in my pocket, thinking it could have been due to the damp weather, for example, uh, and covered them up. When I was walking around Stonehenge, security came over to me because I wasn't, I suppose, not behaving like a tourist. I was walking <laughs> around the Aubrey House. Well, they expect you to stand like a stone and freeze. Uh, I, I, th I think they do. I think if you do anything out of the ordinary at Stonehenge, they watch you like a hawk. Uh, and because I wasn't going into the center like everybody else, I was walking around the outside. They started to follow me around. <laughs> with, uh, oh, with and we body. don't have video of this. Uh. No, it was just far too wet to really uh, use the, the equipment that we took. It was, you know, pelting down. And, uh, and my colleague had an umbrella and just gently placed it into the ground to lean on when we, he came over and said, what was I doing? Why was I walking around the outside? Uh, and then he uh, proceeded to really speak quite roughly with my colleague and, and said, you know, get your umbrella out of the ground. Uh, you're damaging Stonehenge, which was, it's, it's called the new surface level. To go back to the Neolithic level at Stonehenge, you have to go down over a meter, uh, you know, sort of about four or five feet mm. down. So it wasn't doing any damage. Anyway, they followed me around for a little while, uh, so I didn't want to actively get the device out then. And then I went into Stonehenge, and then they must have radioed through to the English Heritage Guide, because she then approached me. <laughs> and, You're so popular. 
I, I smile a lot to them. And, uh, and she just said, are you doing anything commercially? Uh, what's going on? Security have alerted me. And I said, I wasn't doing anything. Started talking to her, mentioned that I was a tour guide. Uh, and it was sort of all good. And she was quite happy with that. And, and she walked off to a certain degree then. So we started the, the transmissions uh, again. And then when the most interesting thing was you do have very powerful lays, ley lines, as you say in the States. We tend to call them lays over here because lay means line. Uh, so there were some really uh, fast-flowing lays, one of which is what's called the axis line, which is northeast to southwest, which includes the main features of Stonehenge, which are the heel stone, which the moon and the sun are aligned to, and the greater trilithon, which uh, the midwinter sun sets behind, very beautifully so. So it's the main axis line, which is very powerful. Then you have another very powerful uh, lay, which goes five degrees off north to south. It's just slightly off north. It's slightly off north because there are gaps in between the lintel stone circle, which contains 30 stones with lintel caps on. So there's a wide opening between them. That's where the lay comes through. It flows right the way through that gap. So you're on the line uh, between the north-south stones there. And when I put the equipment onto that lay, it literally drained my phone before my eyes. What? And drained all of the, the equipment. Yes, it was really, really very, very, very fast. Wow. And uh, this has happened on several occasions. I took a professional photographer in because I know all of the features there. Uh, he hired me to do that. And I said to him, you know, you want to avoid the north-south sector because it will probably do something to your camera. And he had a very expensive camera worth thousands and thousands of pounds. And he went on to that, that lane and was just, you know, shrugging off what I was saying. Because well, it's he, very, very powerful. Well, he wanted the shot, I presume. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really good shot because it's an unusual stone there. It's a very short stone by a very tall uh, sculptured stone. It, it's very dynamic. It, you can really see them. They stand out. And his camera just started to go, instead of seeing the, the shot, it just going white, like ghostly white. Ah. And that's been quite common at Stonehenge uh, as well. So it, it, the, these lines are highly, highly uh, powerful uh, in their own uh, regard. And in fact, even my colleague's phone, his drained as well. His went really, really low. Uh, and he was sort of getting quite, um, you know, irritated by that because uh, his car was playing up that day. <laughs> he was worried that ah. he was getting his now, now, you were planning to use your phone as the input for the file that Thomas and David created for this three-plus-minute yes. transmission sequence. You're using the file on the phone into the radio, from the radio out through the antenna in Stonehenge, resonating the stones, and hopefully detectable many, many, many thousands of miles away, right? Yes. So, I mean, it was it was okay for about the first 20, 20, 20 minutes, I think. It was around about that time that I then started to uh, interact with the lay energy there. Well, if you knew that this lay is a dangerous place for electronics, why, given your prehistory, did you 
decide to do something on the lay that morning? Because it's the most powerful lay in the in the entire complex, and uh, I wanted to see if that would do anything. Uh, maybe allow the signal to come out much louder, ah, uh, or, okay. or do something with it, because it, it flows literally all the way around the world, and it links in. Importantly, it links to all of the major sites in the British Isles hmm. uh, in terms of megalithic sites. So whatever happens on that lay, you will then influence every other site on that line hmm okay so when this happened when you're on that five degree off north line you're watching your battery go to go to hell uh, what did you do next well that's when we we got off it and thought yes it's really if you know highly active today maybe it's a weather pattern as well because weather interacts with uh, some of the the energies at Stonehenge as well uh, and it, it influences your dowsing reaction uh, as well so then obviously you know I, I get off I get off the line and I then go to what's called the trilathon settings of which there are five standard very huge they weigh about a hundred tons each of stones with in that monument so you're right in the, the heart of Stonehenge at this at this stage with these huge stones towering above you it is it's very very atmospheric in the pouring rain and sleet <laughs> in the pouring rain and sleet uh, but God uh, you are you are such an intrepid pioneer your, your father would be very yes. proud of you I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure he's been through all of that stone. <laughs> and he'd also say, "Why didn't she know enough to come in out of the rain?" <laughs> <laughs> Maria, where well, were you on... standing? I'm sorry to interrupt, Richard, but I no. Go ahead, Maria. Where were you? He said it was about 20 minutes when you mm. interacted with this line, and and where were you standing again? To begin with, on the outside of the stone circle, which is what's called the Aubrey holes, which um, are some distance from the standing stones. So that's where I started, and then you kind of walk towards the site, and I always enter Stonehenge in the correct manner as well, like the ancients did through, through stone number one and 30, it's called. And no tourist does that. Hmm. Hi there. Uh, this is Thomas, uh, Maria. So, whereabouts did you did you broadcast? Um, I'll tell you what, guys. But b- before we bombard our questions, let her go through the narrative. We got plenty of time. Then we'll do this and ask her because I know we're looking at certain readings at certain geometries when she was in certain places. That's why we wanted the video record so we could sync that TikTok up. So she'll have to do it, you know, from memory. But let's let her finish the coherent story and then we'll we'll go back and do that in the next half hour marie go ahead yes so with uh with 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 stonehenge you can interact with different uh times of the monument as well different phases and i think that one of the most strong this is why i think what, what 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 the heck did you just say well, you've got different phases at Stonehenge. You've got phase Oh, you one. mean in terms of the construction, reconstruction? In terms of construction. Okay. Yes, and, and I think the reason why the number 56 came up to begin with, which is phase one, is because it was all just the bluestones. Yeah, and for the, the folks who missed I... that, we, we did a series of Amuamu transmissions to the moon, and David decoded the frequencies on his meter that night 
and the number 56 kept popping up again and again and again, and we talked, and he hadn't a clue, and I said, oh, my God, that's Stonehenge. That's the Aubrey Holes. And then we contacted you. I, I tried to contact you live, and, and you were transiting somewhere, you know, in, from Wales, I guess, with, with no Wi-Fi. So you didn't get the message till the next day. But, but we were told by whomever we're talking to, look at Stonehenge, which is why you wound up in the sleet and rain, freezing your you-know-what off, um, watching your batteries drain in the middle of this monument. Because they, whoever they are, said, go to Stonehenge. Yes, uh, exactly. And so the, the, the first phase of construction at Stonehenge was the 56 blue stones. It's a perfect stone circle containing all of uh, the blue stones and the different types of blue stones as well, because that's a generic word. Some of the blue stones have particular lined features in them of like felspar quartz-like material going down. And it was a very large stone circle. And these, the, that is the most powerful part of Stonehenge, which is around Aubrey Hole number one to seven going round. Uh, in terms of magnetic anomalies as well, which was done by English Heritage. And so if you imagine, you've got this huge 56 blue stones in a, a gigantic stone circle, much, much larger than what we see Stonehenge today, with this uh, electro, well, they call it an electromagnetic flow, English Heritage, when they did some geophys there, it flows into that area as well. So it's a, it's a very highly active area. And the, the blue stones when it comes to uh, any type of earth energy beneath the ground, uh, react more strongly to that than sarsen. Yeah, hang on, hang on. If, 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 people, if people want to see what Marie is talking about, go to number four of her items. This is an aerial photograph looking down on Stonehenge from probably a helicopter, maybe a drone. And that whitish half circle, that is a, uh, a chalk... Uh, uh, mound and, and ditch and the Aubrey holes the original phase one bluestone sockets uh, of this hundreds of foot wide circle are just inside that half circle of uh, whitish material which is very far away from the center of what's considered Stonehenge now and that's where you started Yes, so that's that's the phase one. And just to say, what we can't see today is the ditch and the bank, which is called a henge. That's what a henge means. It's a ditch and a bank. Was ten feet high. So whatever happened on the inside of Stonehenge could not be seen by anybody that was outside of Stonehenge. Mm. It was a very secretive place. That's a little-known fact about Stonehenge because people see it as it is today. Brilliant, highly polished chalk bank as well. So it would have been brilliant white against these beautiful, very dark, midnight blue stones. So it would have been a very aesthetically pleasing-looking monument. So that's why I think, and also that stone circle is intimately associated to the moon, uh, because if you have 19, 18, and 19 cycles, according to Gerald Hawkins that investigated Stonehenge, that equates to the number 56 as well. So it's, it's activated uh, by the, the moon as well, which is what the heel stone was originally designed to focus on the moon's metonic cycle, not the sun. The 
sun is a degree off at Stonehenge, but it's the well-known one. So it really is one of the most powerful monuments. And what the ancients did, again, which is little known, they dismantled it. And I think they dismantled the, the blue stones because it became highly, maybe too highly active. Because by that stage, just before they dismantled those 56 blue stones, they built a fence on top of the hen's bank to block it off even more to outsiders. So something was going on that was very strange in, hmm. in that uh, part of Stonehenge's history. Hmm. Fascinating. Okay, so you're standing there in the rain, you're on the lay, you're watching your batteries drain, you move off the lay, what happens next? Well, then uh, I start to uh, look around by the, uh, the trilophones, and I'm walking uh, around in a clockwise motion, which is the, the way that uh, druids uh, traditionally walk around a stone circle, and uh, seeing if my battery would, uh, would come back uh, to life, uh, which, uh, which uh, it flickered for a while the phones were, were flickering uh, and my my colleagues as well so it was even when you were off the line i think stonehenge was highly active that day hmm. and the uh the security walkie-talkie his he kept uh, we noticed he kept like looking at his uh walkie-talkie <laughs> as well as if something was going on so we were noticing around it just seemed to be a very highly charged day well february 4th in terms of the ritual calendar, geometrically with the sun and the moon, it's, 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 it's not a random day, is it? No, it's called Imbolc to, to the Druids. It's um, a day when uh, Druids believe the veil between this world and the next grows thin. And the, it's the, the stirring of springtime. It's, it's been celebrated for thousands and thousands of years. And we're Christianized to uh, Candlemas. The, the Christians uh, renamed all of the pagan festival dates to, to their own description. So it, it was the, it's the day of the goddess as well. It's, it's the great goddess Breed's Day. Uh, again, she was Christianized to St. Bridget. But it's Breed's Day where, where she kind of gives the fertility back to the earth. It's, it's a very, very ancient festival. I'll tell you what, we're at the top of the hour. My first guest this morning, Maria Wheatley, <clears throat> the intrepid Lady Maria, who is, um, gosh, you, ha you, have, you have courage and endurance and all those things that uh, polar explorers used to have to have just to transmit a signal, a preset set of codes from the center of Stonehenge. Do not touch that dial. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Midnight.com. 
tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, February 12th, 2022. We're listening to Maria Wheatley describe in rather interesting detail the um, trials and tribulations of Pauline in just transmitting or receiving a signal from the center of Stonehenge. Maria, pick it up there. Yes, so uh, I did uh, transmit uh, several times where within Stonehenge on, on different on the different frequencies. Um, I managed to do that before the the batteries drained. So I did uh, put, put put something out uh, as it were there. Uh, one of my uh, other friends in the area, who's an amateur ham radio expert, he said that the the signal in this area, according to him, four three two, uh, is the uh, allocated to the military. That doesn't mean they always use it, but they're allocated that uh, band as well uh, to be to be used by them. So uh, it, it seemed every now and again that the when I did transmit, it would suddenly stop inexplicably, which wasn't happening uh, when we were testing it out uh, in my home previously. It wasn't it wasn't doing that. So at some point, it did seem that it was being almost like blocked. I, I couldn't describe it any other way. Hmm. Well, when we get into Thomas and John, you know, describing their frequency analysis, uh, <clears throat> both of them independently spotted some very intriguing anomalies about the signals. So we can ultimately correlate all this into a coherent picture of something going on. I don't think if you were being blocked, it was by the uh, British military. I think this is far above their pay grade. I think if you were blocked, it was it was because the the properties of Stonehenge, this ancient, as uh, uh, you know, uh, Goran said the other night, you know, intergalactic <clears throat> hypernet transmitter, um, it, it may have done this. It may have done the damage all by itself because we're looking at two, in essence, uh, maybe immiscible technologies. We will find that out. Uh, uh, you know, in a week or so, when we uh, well, we will we'll talk about that in a while. Okay, so please go back to the narrative. Yes, so uh, the I did manage to do uh, a transmission. You're right, Stonehenge in itself is uh, one of the most powerful places on on Earth. 
it has the most extraordinary earth energies and lay energies there to boot as well on top of all of this plus it's sited on a very large aquifer as most ancient sites are worldwide and and you've got the, the chalk as well is is highly conductive as well so put all of that together and you do have a, a, a an immense power place so I did get the, the signals out. Some of them were probably quite short uh, in duration, but uh, the, they got transmitted nonetheless. Well, the curious thing is that I'm here, and uh, at this time maybe I should take a moment to describe what we were doing outside of your experiment. We had designated uh, Maria the kind of uh, you know, transmitter for the morning. She would transmit and receive from within the monument. The rest of us only listen, and we had uh, Keith listening on both his radios just outside Washington, D.C. We had Michael uh, Lee Hill uh, listening uh, on both frequencies and recording uh, near Crystal Springs, Florida, an ancient Native American mound ceremonial complex on the western side of Florida. Uh, We had me uh, here not far from the Sandias, in the literal lee of the Sandias, where there's very strange things that almost look like they're ancient sculpted pyramids and other major geoglyphs up there. Anyway, um, I was able to get very strong signals and digitally record for hours and hours and hours, both before, during, and after your experimental uh, Uh, time frame. And then out uh, west in Canada, we had Thomas, uh, who was, you know, involved in the ultimate analysis. And David had another receiver, and he recorded and looked at, uh, you know, recorded the signals he got from this time frame, as well as did his own frequency analysis. And he'll be coming on shortly to talk about that. So we had a number of different observers on this worldwide network. We even had uh, uh, Dr. Sam Osmanagic and his friend uh, uh, Goran listening in, uh, in, in Bosnia and uh, Serbia, but they were unable to perceive the right equipment because of the imports and the long time delays and supply chains. So they looked at their own instrumentation of the pyramid, but they had to do it from hundreds of miles away and according to their latest emails, they did not detect anything. So that will be part of it to be worked out additional level of experimentation for some future sessions. So we have several active uh, receivers, all of which received data, uh, all of which has been analyzed to some degree. And so after you finish completing this uh, tale of the perils of Pauline We'll go to John and Thomas to talk about what they received, because the one thing I wanted to say is that as I began recording about an hour before you were scheduled to be in the monument, and according to our original time frame uh, doing your first transmission, I noticed about 15 minutes before the hour, before you were supposed to be in the monument, I noticed something really interesting happen to my own receiving and recording. And later on, when Thomas and John talk about this in detail, 
you'll see that the signals corresponded to your early transmission as you're approaching Stonehenge. So we know now, categorically, that thousands of miles away from England on a little uh, transmitter, which is the maximum about eight watts, somehow you were able to reach receivers uh, in Florida and in New Mexico. Uh, and I'm not sure whether David picked up your transmissions at the same time. I think he did, but we'll find that out. So the first major question, was this phenomenon regional, local, meaning something weird with the radios, or was it global? We now know that when you transmit, you get a global answer, and the answers appear, as you'll hear in detail in a minute or two, they, they appear to overlap. So please continue. Well, that's really interesting. Uh, so, yes, I mean, I think that the most successful uh, transmission was the uh, within the first 15 minutes as I'm approaching the Aubrey Hole. So that's where, where I was. It was sort of more on the Aubrey Hole section and uh, walking to that, so to speak, because uh, you, you get dropped off on the bus and then you walk towards the monument. And that's when I started the, the kind of major first uh, transmission. So it's interesting that may correlate to the Aubrey Hole. Have you created a map, you know, just an overhead view map of where you were at certain times when certain things were done, now that we don't have video? Yes, uh, yes I can put that down, yes, onto, onto a map. Yeah. Oh, excellent, excellent. I haven't, I haven't got that done today, but yes, I can do that. I will do that later on today for you. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. Okay, so you're standing there in the pouring rain. It's sleeting. Security people are looking at you, you know, very suspiciously. Uh, your radio's gone out. Your iPhone has gone zoop down in battery level. What happens next? I'm dreaming about having a coffee. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll bet. <laughs> no. Uh, yeah, no. Uh, that's when I started just to, you know, really uh, check with, uh, I did some douse in there as well to check the, the energy levels. Were they any different to any other day? Uh, checking the lines and checking different, uh, uh, what's called earth currents as Boy, well as, as lays. You are so I, so, I, I did such a, a pioneer. As well. Gosh. And, and, and they were highly active. You use what's called a, a European Dowson method called a bovis meter, which gives you a reading, you know, sort of like on a scale, I'll simplify on one to ten of what the, the energies are. And they were very, very powerful uh, that day. And uh, even some of the people that came over because I was dousing that they wanted to go. So I let them have a quick uh, go. Uh, they'd never had a dowsing rod in their hand before, and it was going crazy, bang, each time that they, they hit on an energy. So, uh, so yes, yeah, so I, I did some dowsing as well. Okay. So how did you wind up your experiment? Well, after the the uh, drainage, as it were, uh, and after the dousing, then the time just goes quite fast. You've, you've just really got an hour at Stonehenge, and it goes incredibly fast. And what you think is, oh, I've probably got another 20 minutes left, uh, is, is, is gone quite quickly. The other interesting thing was uh, with our watches. I've got a, a really nice uh, watch. And that lost 15 minutes of time. Oh, and, my uh, gosh. 
Well, that's, 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 that's basically what the Accutron does. It's measuring the vibrations of a tuning fork. And I, when I was there, and I will, again, I keep promising to send you these maps, I actually did a, a, an overhead display of where we were doing the measurements. There's an extraordinary hyperdimensional torsion field source somewhere buried in the center of the monument. And when I was there measuring with the Accutron, uh, which is in essence the the heart of the Accutron watch, um, if you'd had hands on the on the watch, which I took off because I didn't want you know, magnetic you know uh, uh, blips or susceptibility, but if I'd had the hands on, it would have been recorded as a normal watch, which lost time. So your watch lost 15 minutes just being in. The monument? Yes, I, I, it's an old. I mean, I've had this watch, you know, for like half my life. It, it means a lot to me. So it's been it's been repaired so several times. So what? Hold it! Hold it! Hold it! Hold it! Hold it! Hold it! What kind of watch is it? Sure. But but that doesn't mean anything. Uh, it's, no, it's it's not. It, it didn't. And uh, I heard. Is it a is it a wind up? Is it a wind up watch? Is it an electric watch? Is it a quartz crystal watch? Uh, it's, 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 it's it's a kind of uh, it's it's about thirty years old, but it's got a battery, and nonetheless, it's it's a battery watch. So we uh, you need to, you need to spell this in email. We'll look it up online, find the specs, because I have a feeling it's a quartz watch with a quartz okay, crystal. Okay, I'll, I'll take a photograph of it for you. Well, we need to it's, know what the, what, uh, yeah, what the so, guts are. We need to know how it works because remember, yeah. it was Kozarev yeah. in the old Soviet Union that found out that quartz interacts with the torsion field the most of almost any other natural material. When I was measuring the the Coral Castle facility uh, down at uh, Coral Castle, which is north of Homestead, Florida, built by Leeds Scalman, this uh, genius mason who created you know, a, a megalithic monument in the middle of nowhere in Florida in the 1950s, when I was there with Robin measuring, uh, I made the mistake of putting my laptop, which of course is a electronic device run by a quartz crystal clock, causes the timing, you know, the timing pulses in a, in a laptop is the quartz crystal clock. I set it physically on one of the stones at Coral Castle. And when I came back, the laptop was, was dead. The battery had been drained. And when I recharged the battery, the damn thing for over a, almost two years would keep losing five to ten minutes per day, regardless of what I did. Mm. It permanently, well, not permanently, but for a long term, it changed the properties of the quartz crystal. So it vibrated at a different frequency than everything else in the world. So it kept losing time. And that effect only wore off after several years was it back to normal. So obviously, if that watch you're talking about is a quartz crystal watch 30 years old, which is what I think it is, the field, the torsion field activated by your transmissions, because I presume you've worn that watch in the monument many times before, right? Yes, yes. Has it ever, has it ever lost time like this? No, not to know. I don't think it has. Well, this is important. 
This is really freaking important because it means what you did somehow affected the whole damn monument and you were in a time bubble literally moving at a different vibrational rate than it had ever been done before. You interacted in a positive way with that monument and probably activated it in ways it hasn't been activated for thousands of years. That's just, uh, that is uh, astonishing. It is. It's a, it is. It's a whole astonishing experiment, uh, which you know we're we're learning about uh, as as we dive in deeper. That's each what time. science is all about. So please continue because I want to bring Thomas and John on to talk about what they received from all of us as we funneled all our recorded data to Thomas and and David and John as analyzers, and each of them got fascinating results in terms of the weirdnesses you were experiencing, some of those weirdnesses seem to actually show up in the data that we all recorded thousands of miles away. Yeah, I know. That's what I'm, I'm looking forward to. And I've just seen as well in the chat that David said that the Great Pyramid height is 208 cubits times 2 equals 560. And the Orbi House, 56 times 10 is 560. So I really think, you know, the whole 56 number is, is hugely important with, uh, with working with these energies. And like you say, something I think was activated at Stonehenge. Something did interfere with the equipment and something did interfere with the watch uh, incident. So something happened. Well, isn't that cool? <laughs> I know it's, it's, beyond, it's beyond. It was beyond my expectations. So, uh, so after you know, obviously when we we left uh, the monument, we went back to uh, the visitor center, which you you have to go through, and and it was nice and warm. <laughs> <laughs> you must pass go. You must give more two hundred dollars, and you do get your cup of hot chocolate. Okay. All right. Yes. Um, so yes. so you physically left on the bus. Uh, you couldn't do anything because you had no batteries that were dead in the water. Um, and then you yes. got home and you and I talked and you sent your data. And that brings us to John. Let me go to John first. Because, John, you wanted to take her on a TikTok through the monument. What did you detect in her transmissions, which which is notable? Well, I got a big hit. Um, <laughs> I, I actually have not David, I can't read that on the air. That's terrible. Oh. <laughs> well, that's why I separated all three letters. <laughs> Go ahead, John. Well, I actually saved my analysis for tomorrow night. I oh, well, give us a, a tease. Give us a tease. Come on. Oh, I'll definitely give you a tease. Um, I I can't wait to compare it with Maria's signal, which I will be doing this coming week, and I'll have that analysis for next weekend but i was just really focused on this hit i got with your recording richard and this was during the time that maria would have been entering the circle and beginning her work and and that's why i asked her where she was at about 20 minutes because i got a hit at uh, your recording it was actually at the time code 19.47.595 minutes recording. You want to say, you there, want to know something really weird? When you just said that, the time changed 11.19.47 on my clock? Nice. This is really getting freaky. 
Yeah, and it's there's a lot of uniqueness to this. I and in the email I, I sent you, Richard, I, I think I referred to it as a, a notch. Yeah. Maybe maybe a notch key. And you know, notches have been used throughout history. Maybe you're walking through the woods and you put a notch on a tree to mark your path, or maybe you have a piece of paper with three lines that are all different sizes drawn, you know, three horizontal lines, let's say, and those can represent a kind of key. It's a notch key. You know, the lines are different lengths and and you use this uh, as sort of a key code to decode other information. Okay. All right. So that was that was my feeling and um yeah, I'll be sharing that tomorrow night, but it was very striking and kind of a Gadzooks intuitive moment. Well, it's like when she turned the damn thing on. Remember, our model is that these are ancient, ancient, solid-state machines. That's why I started out the show tonight by playing Pink Floyd, you know, the machine, because these are machines, and we're activating them in ways, of course, you can't account for the military and the deep state and those folks, but I think we're doing things at a civilian level that have not been done for thousands of years, if not longer. Now, you can program crystals. When you buy a crystal online, let's say, a lot of um, folks will tell you that you want to program it with intent and, you know, mindfulness, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So that's what I do with my crystals. And I think the, the crystals are could be what we're hearing from is these intelligent crystals I, one possibility, I think, is from Mars. Like, if you look in my images tonight, can we go to my images? Is this well, okay, well I, because we've been building this up and building this up, and I'm going to have to, uh, you know, basically award Thomas the Patience of the Evening Award. <laughs> let, us, let us go to Thomas, okay? Because, Thomas, you've sure. got some amazing correlations. Go for it. <clears throat> um, yeah, so... So one thing that I wanted to mention, I'm actually I've been I'm been sort of messaging with a uh, a friend of mine that's tuned in, and so he's been listening to the conversation, and he mentioned something very interesting, that it's sort of like the 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 quartz and the crystal sort of act as like a ancient solid state machinery, and that's actually something that I've been sort of thinking about in terms of um, just data storage and, and crystals in general. But, you know, going back to the signals here, I mean, I got to tell you, first and foremost, I've, in um, some of the items, and so for the people that are listening out there, you can go to uh, um, the other side of midnight.com. Uh, and go to the uh, to the picture of tonight's show and into the file so you can kind of follow, follow along here. Um, so what I did was I actually, you know, I, I analyzed, um, so Maria, your, your sounds, um, and then as well the recordings that came in through Richard, um, as well as Michael's. Um, I was able to extract the audio from the uh, video that Michael had recorded of his radio, um, getting these these um, uh, these signal uh, signals uh, coming in. So <clears throat> we'll start with Maria's. Um, you know, hers sounded very different than than what we've been uh, used to so far. The one thing the when I was listening to this and I was starting to analyze it, the one thing that I felt the intensity of of what was being received 
it was super chaotic. It's very uh, just almost abrasive, you know, if we were going to kind of describe it in a musical way. Uh, but when I spoke with Richard earlier this week, you know, what I really was getting the sense of is that there was just a lot of power. So either amplified out of the signal, very fast repeating uh, patterns. Now, you know, one thing I did notice, and this is what we're going to uh, to try to work with you, uh, Maria, over Skype, is to really sort of calibrate uh, the recording. Um, now, luckily, you were able to record without things completely distorting, um, though the signal was coming in pretty hot. So there was quite a bit of sort of, you know, digital sort of noise, um, just in terms of, I think, the strength of the signal that was coming in. So I think that, you know, as we sort of refine some of the, 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 the parts of this process, you know, we'll be able to kind of come up with some, some safe levels to operate at, um, knowing that things are just going to kind of seemingly be amplified. Um, <clears throat> now, the interesting thing is that based off of what you're explaining uh, of where you did these transmissions, the timing, and some of the things <clears throat> that I picked up through uh, Richard radio, Richard's radio, there really seems to be some correlations here. So we'll kind of go through this step by step. Now, you know, because the people that are tuning in here, they haven't listened to what some of these these recordings sound like. I think, you know, it's kind of a, a good time to jump into this. So with Maria's, you know, in terms of being able to just kind of get your head wrapped around, you know, what you're listening to, as I said, Maria's uh, signal that she picked up was very intense, very fast, repeating uh, noises. Um, some stuff, you know, could be through, again, I'm trying to, you know, I'm going in into this completely blind. Um, I didn't speak to John. I didn't speak to David. I, you know, I really didn't even speak to Richard. I didn't speak to anybody. I just got the files and on my own time <clears throat> went through and processed and did a whole bunch of things with them. Um, so this was very much just based off of the audio. Well, it's the essence no of independent analysis. Exactly. So, and I think that it's important that as we do these kinds of things that we do sort of keep this a little bit independent. And then, you know, when we're coming together on, on the show or, or in a, in a conversation or something, um, you know, that we can kind of compare notes. So I'm, I'm actually very interested to sort of see if some of the things that I found, you know, or maybe some stuff that John, uh, John picked up. So, um, I probably won't be able to partake on the conversation tomorrow evening, so it might actually work out quite well that I can go into a little bit more of an in-depth um, sort of explanation with what you know I've been able to find on mine, and then John can focus on his findings tomorrow. So, um, anyways, um, I think one of the things that we should start with is maybe playing uh, the first link to now again because Mar Maria's signal was very very intense. There's some things happening very fast. You know, I wanted to be able to kind of get my head wrapped around what was going on. So one of the easiest ways to do that is just to kind of slow it down. Um, <clears throat> so I've slowed down Maria's uh, two times. And really what I was trying to do is just kind of open up the space a little bit to see if I'm picking anything out of the sounds. Um, obviously, by slowing it down, you're affecting pitch and, and this and that. So it's not so much – this wasn't so much to – 
to identify specific frequencies or look at specific numbers. This was really just kind of to get a little bit more of a contextual um, look as to what the signal was coming in just because there's this intensity that was coming across. So um, I've uploaded the slowdown uh, version of Maria's, uh, some of Maria's um, transmissions. So I guess maybe Richard, if you wanted to play that, we can kind of is that get a feel. Uh, is that item number four? Uh, let me double check here. It is. If you click on, okay, yes. No, sorry. Item number five. Number five. Okay. Yeah, I've posted some of just so that people understand. Um, we've we've kept some of the information from the previous um, shows so that people can go and listen to the, you know, some of the previous analysis or the signal or things like that. So the the new findings start in number five. Okay. Um, let us, and that's let a, us see yeah. if this goes through the board. Okay. Here we go. There's a repeating frequency. I'm looking at the graph as these sounds are coming through. Here comes a big one. right it sounds frenetic incredibly energetic like she's at the center of a cyclone Okay, so just so we'll stop with that. So basically, you kind of get you kind of get a sense there. Now, for whatever, oh, it's bottom of the hour, I think. Um, I don't know if you want to maybe go. Oh yeah, to, it is. Yeah, I'm very glad that you noticed that. <laughs> you can thank Keith for that one. <laughs> You're on the other side of midnight, everybody. We're going through some analysis that Thomas conducted of Maria's recordings made from the interior of Stonehenge. And it does sound frenetic, energetic. In fact, it sounds overwhelming. And further, while this was going on, her watch lost 15 minutes of time. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we shall return. Thank you. 
theothersideofmidnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, to this Saturday night, February 12th, 2022. The Other Side of Midnight, we are replaying back now transmissions from somewhere, from someone, from someone that were received in answer to Maria's pioneering radio transmissions on two frequencies, 144.1 megahertz and 43. 432 megahertz on Friday morning at about quarter of eight um, British time in Britain in a sleety, rainy, really, really bad hair day. So, Thomas, let's return to your analysis because this is where things get really intriguing. It it sounded, I don't want to say angry, but it sounded incredibly overwhelmingly powerful. Well, it sounds like what a black hole to me would sound like. Yeah, kind of. Um, <laughs> um, no, but... But it's not continuous. So, it stops and starts. And no, stops. and I mean, the thing is... Well, it, no, and I think that was also maybe uh, how it was playing on, on your computer. But um, if, you, if you take... If, you know, people at home go and take a listen to the to the SoundCloud link. You sort of hear some of these segments um, go through. Now, the reason why I also wanted to slow down was there there almost seemed to be almost like a again like I, I sort of put like words to describe sounds. It was almost kind of like a ping pong sound, and it was happening very asymmetrically. Um, so there were certain parts of the 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 sound that sort of have like a uniformity. Um, in terms of its like rhythmic structure, and then there were some other ones that were sort of very asymmetrical, <clears throat> a little bit more chaotic. So, you know, bottom line, you know, that was where I kind of, you know, was focused my analysis with uh, with Maria's because it was, I mean, it, you know, it was just very chaotic. It's just kind of all over the place. Now, what was very interesting though was to start taking a look at what came in on at least Richard's and Michael's. Now I wasn't able to compare anything to David's yet, but the, this is sort of my takeaways, which 
again, I spoke to uh, spoke to Richard this week about, which I thought was very important and sort of, at least for me, gives enough credibility and some of the evidence that we're seeing to really continue doing what we're trying to do right here. And that was that there is absolutely a similarity between what is being received on Michael's radio and on your radio in terms of the structure of these sounds and how they're coming across. When you say your radio, Maria's or mine? No, I'm saying I'm saying between Michael's and yours. Ah, okay. I think I think like look at I mean Maria's going into the belly of the beast. <laughs> yes. Um um like yeah, I mean the behavior some of the some of the the equipment and just I mean as she's describing her experience and and all I kind of really have had up until this moment like tonight was was just the, the the sound files from her the intensity of that day and the intensity of of everything I felt that from what she picked up so now in terms of her kind of broadcasting out of that powerful location and then having a an effect on on radios in very completely I mean what is the distance between you and Michael Oh like 2000 miles Okay so I mean we're talking you know and you guys are on a different continent I mean we're all on a different continent than Maria mm. so so the interesting thing to me is that you know I think that we're starting to see like a little bit more of a clearly defined cause and effect and that cause and effect is non-local um, and it's happening in very different places, but the time periods now, you know, as we've put this together and a lot of this for people out there, this is very grassroots. I mean, we're, we, you know, it's, it's amazing to be, to be working with uh, somebody like Maria who has the opportunity to go and actually do this out of Stonehenge. <laughs> and, you know, this is, this is part of what makes a lot of this very interesting. Obviously uh, English heritage ordered up the worst possible weather they could <laughs> for her. Yeah, but I mean, but, uh, but hey, I mean, look at that says a lot about <laughs> Maria to actually weather weather the uh, the environmental, uh, you know, the environmentals. But I mean, the environmentals also, I think, um, could magnify by energies. That's why I mean, if we're able to do some sort of a repeat at some point um, with this, would be sort of great. Um, to again, you know, refine some of the calibration of the recording equipment, um, and then sort of compare it with do be able to do like an A/B test. But I think we, know, I think we need more of a CAT scan. I think we need to start far outside and work our way methodically toward well, the monument. So yeah, so this is the thing. I mean, so so when you had mentioned, and and again, I mean, we're sort of working with general times there at home. We're we're dealing with uh, uh, general sort of timing of this. Um, it's not like we have some type of a synchronized. Well, we're dealing uh, with you know just, synchronization within let's say ten, fifteen, twenty seconds. Exactly. Now the thing is, is that, and this kind of leads me to the next item, and this is where. I really, when I was look, going through this, this, uh, the sounds, and you kind of get used to the chirps, or you get used to some of the stuff, and you're trying to identify patterns, or you're trying to identify sequences, or things like that. Um, out of your transmission, which oddly enough, 
was in the pre-transmission. So this was before the transmission actually occurred from Stonehenge. But then when we spoke this week, you told me that Maria had actually broadcast outside of Stonehenge. And there was a very clear sort of changing and shifting of what you ended up picking up. And then there was this one part, as I was listening through it, I thought at first it was a voice. And it was very faint. And there was a lot of uh, sort of like static and some some noises, but it, like it, almost like a wail, like a wailing, uh, you know, a cry of some sort. Okay, and you it, mean it like was, like a like a banshee? No, like like a a voice, sort of like wailing, like like. Now I heard an extra harmonic in Richard's recording, so okay. it's funny yeah. to bring that up. Yeah, yeah. So so, anyways, when I heard that, I was like, it just. I mean. You know, again, you're trying to, your brain is trying to uh, recognize some type of a pattern. So you're like j- jumping through a whole bunch of different things. It caught me. Like I was just, it, like my attention just went, oh, what was that? And then I went back to it. So I isolated that, that section. And then what I was able to do is I was able to really kind of filter out. I notched out um, some of the excess noise so that, I was able to bring the volume up of this so that you can kind of hear it. So, I mean, let's, let's play it. That's my, so on that same link. Uh, so number five, Richard, Yeah. if you go to the, if you go to the, it's, it's item number two on the SoundCloud link, which is Richard 12, uh, 59 recording okay. 430. All right. So let me start this. Okay. Let me hit it so again. Very, Hang on. Uh, I had the bot down for the first part of it. Okay. Might be able to uh, yes. isolate that. So I in number if you click on number three, okay, I filtered you. out the excess and really just I, concentrated I, on keeping in the EQ what you're hearing that like uh, okay so this is at 432 hertz so this is processed just so that so the last one is the raw recording this is now my my uh eq'd version of it ah okay here we go okay okay doesn't happen it gets louder toward the end. Like there. Yes, exactly. There's like two peaks that are pretty loud. Yes. Now, what John just said is absolutely correct. I mean, like when I listen to it at the higher volume, it feels like some type of a harmonic. Now, so when I open this up into a frequency analyzer, obviously that tone is not like an individual, like an individual tone. But guess where that range is? <laughs> it's at four hundred. It. It's at four. It's at four hundred and thirty-two hertz. Oh, isn't that special, <clears throat> church lady? But the, exactly. And the thing is, is that like after that section, 
okay? The behavior of the radio, the behavior of the radio goes back to this, like, super staccato, like, Okay, uh-huh. and and this is what we were sort of t- talking about this week. So when I found out that basically there was a broad, like our signal was broadcast within a, you know, let's say five mile radius of Stonehenge. And then this was ca- like you're capturing basically the behavior of the radio leading up to the experiment. Okay, once the experiment was on, like w- was happening. Okay, the behavior of your radio and the behavior of Michael's radio. Now, here's the. This is very uh, a good sort of um, uh, something that I was able to to sort of see here is that Michael's was he was recording his radio with a camera. So his radio, what your list, what the sound source was, was actually acoustic. So it's I'm from the speaker up, on the radio. Exactly into the microphone in his phone. Exactly. Yours is a digital yep. input recording, but you're hearing this exact same sort of pattern. Cool. On both. Okay. Cool. So, so we're, we're ta- there's a couple of important takeaways. As I as I said in our conversation this week, Richard, um, these are the kinds of validations that that are going to allow us to kind of further refine refine this. Well, Michael for, and I are both almost 10,000 miles from Britain. Well, exactly. So, I mean, and we're not even in the same azimuth. He's way south in Florida. I'm, you know, far west. Uh, um, I'll I'll, I'll get into the directional properties of the radio because I found the best reception is if I hold it horizontal and Mm -hmm. move the antenna like a, like a giant compass in a 360 circle. And I, I recorded this stuff with the antenna pointing horizontally East. Well, so I mean, he, so so here's the here's the thing. I mean, that that 432 hertz little sort of harmonic, that's very deep within the uh, within the sound. Like there's a lot of other sound going on. I mean, like somebody with without a trained ear would have picked that out. It was like pretty kind of like in your face. I I, I kind of jumped back at you. I was going like, what like what the heck is that? <laughs> like, that's like kind of weird. Yeah. Can I throw so, in here, Thomas? I, I had hmm. the same thing where I opened up Richard's recording and just started playing it through my monitor speaker. Mm-hmm. And I, I went, Whoa, what's that? That's the first thing I noticed. And, you know, I just sat down to approach this like you very open-minded and my tuition's cranked up to 10 and so I, I grabbed the headphones and listened. I'm like, I'm not hearing things. So I had the same sort of reaction that you did. So this is very cool. Did you did you did you find the same part? Well, I I haven't really examined that harmonic because I was drawn next to the 19.47 spot on the recording yeah i was looking i I wanted to listen to a a block and 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 the best block of clicks was toward the end towards the end yeah yeah so yeah so here's so here's the thing like um 
you know, what I what we've noticed now is that there seems to be a very asymmetric and irregular pattern to the clicks. So I tried, and I tried this first with with Michael's um, signal, um, just because it was a shorter file. And, you know, I'm kind of listening to the pattern, and I'm trying to sort of, you know, see some some sort of repetition. There isn't. I mean, it's like, it's really organic. There's no consistent timing in between the clicks. It's like very all over the place. So, you know, where my head was at in terms of how can we further analyze this, I was like, okay, like, you know, this does, let's say this was maybe some type of like a hyperdimensional Morse code, okay? Um, How would I be able to, to sort of translate some of this rhythmic structure and, and be able to extract some information from. Now, I don't believe that we're receiving Morse, just people out there, just so you understand. But what I'm trying to do is take that same type of uh, approach that the sequencing, the timing, um, you know, not so much the intensity. The intensity seems to be the well, amplitude. Let me, let, me, let, me, let me stop you there. There's no a priori reason why, if it turned out to be Morse code, it would be bizarre because obviously whoever we're talking to knows us they're telling us about us so they must know all of human history at some level they obviously have recordings of morse code they must know historically that morse code if they want to communicate earth humans the morse code was adopted early as a standard and it's all over our early transmissions into space from terrestrial radio from the teens and the 20s, you know, Marconi, Tesla, all the other pioneers. Uh, So if it had been Morse, that wouldn't rule out that it was real. It just turns out, according to your analysis, not to be Morse, which is another data Yeah, so so basically, like, in that thinking process, I wanted to try to find some type of a way that I could process the sound and be able to have some type of an algorithm be able to spit out, whether it be a number, whether it be some type of an equation or whatever, some type of numerical or visual representation for these clicks. Because when you start listening to this over the course of like a 15 or 20 minute, like, you know, everything kind of ramps up. and, And again, like, you know, these radios will sometimes be silent. And then when there's almost like an intention or one of these experiments happening, then like things start going kind of, it's going kind of crazy. Right. So where up to this point, we've been concentrating on tonal and the frequencies. Okay. This kind of opens up, you know, our awareness and what we're looking for to also be taking into account some temporal stuff in terms of um, the rhythmic structure of, of the, of the, the, the clicks. So I couldn't really find. So hang know, on a second. Let me, let me be clear. We've been looking at the internals, as they would say in polling of the frequencies in these uh, packets of transmission. Now you're taking the packets as a whole, the chirps, and dealing with them as discrete units as if they were on-off dots, dashes of Morse code. Exactly. So they're not exactly. Morse. Exactly. So I've started really, you know, thinking about this just because of the nature of the click. 
that the click is kind of like an on-off. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we would look at like a base two number system, which could be like binary. Again, I'm not expecting, you know, that that we're going to get some type of, this, you know, hey guys, how's it going type of message. It's more just to start understanding if there is some type of an intellectual or intellectual uh, intelligent uh, nature to the number sequencing, right? So, the one I found this a really amazing tool online. Um, it's for people out there. It's called MorseCode.world. Um, it's an open source online project, <clears throat> and, and it's got a way for you to be able to do uh, um, audio decode uh, of Morse code. So you, in theory, could upload an audio file of recorded Morse. And on the website, you can, you know, you sort of upload it, you press play, it plays live, and then... Oh, I can see it now. You record an old episode of The Lone Ranger, where they're in a telegraph office, you record that sequence, you run it through this decoder, and you see if they're really transmitting Morse code or just faking it. 100%. 100%. So the first, you know, I just found this randomly. I loaded up uh, Michael's, uh, Michael's file. And because I pulled the audio out of his video file and just isolated the audio, so I was able to upload it into the into the Morse code audio decoder. Um, and this was just the standard audio decoder. So there aren't any sort of variables or, you know, sensitivities. There's no adjustments. It's basically it just kind of does its thing. So it w- goes through, and surprisingly enough, like some letters start appearing, but it was just ease. Okay, this is like e e e e e e e e e e e e e e e e e e. And then, as I as I was exploring the website, there's an audio decoder expert, which was where I sort of you know ended up doing some more extensive processing. And you know what I was looking for at this point was, do we have any samples to play? I mean, this is radio. Of the of the Morse code stuff. Well, the Morse code, it's just basic. I'm just running the raw signal. Okay. <laughs> it's just running your raw, just your raw signal straight through in. So, I mean, it's, it's, um, I should have, in retrospect, I should have probably uploaded. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think we've let people hear what the raw signal sounds like. Yeah. Um, we've done, know, we've done we, Maria's d- sounds, but they're basically slowed down by a factor of two, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I can I can upload while we're talking. Well, are these where it says further sound analysis number four? That's from January fifteenth. Uh, yeah. Um, is is that raw sound from my my recordings? No, but I'm gonna do I'm gonna I'm all uploaded in real time right now. I okay. Have everything all yeah. So but we can continue sort of discussing. Well, don't upload it. Just play it. Let's see if we can hear it. Uh, I can't because I'm on headphones, so oh. it'd be a little bit, yeah, it'd be a little bit difficult to to sort of do that. <clears throat> so, anyways, what are we looking for here? Well, this is the one of the <laughs> one of the first tools that I was able to find that can actually convert sort of a. Uh, a so base this is number seven. Sounding. This is your item number seven. Yeah. So now we can, yeah. So we can go into some. These are just images. Some of the um, some of the screen captures. Um, of some of the different uh, uh, variables here, because when I was ah. able to load in your your file, 
I loaded up your file first into the simple version, and again, I was just getting some ease, okay? So we've got verification that the sound acoustically is, you know, triggering certain Morse, you know, responses. Then I went into the advanced section and was able to play with the sensitivities, and so you can, you know, adjust the amplitude that it's looking at or the frequency range. Um, I would assume just because, you know, Morse probably operated on like some type of like, a, you know, an international standard for, you know, the, the, the signal, like where, where it was sitting or what the, what the actual frequency, <clears throat> you know, was. So there seems to be, but the expert, the expert mode allows you to really dial things in a little bit. So um, I did post, um, uh, so on this simple one, uh, so if you look at number seven, uh, so if we, it's, we'll start at number six. So if you look at picture number six, um, there's a really nice uh, way that, the, um, that this is analyzing, like in a picture way, the analyzer for the, for the audio is actually quite nice looking. So that's just a picture of what you're actually seeing. So those are the chirps, and that's specifically chirps coming through Michael's. So you can kind of see them going through there. Um, and then uh, picture number seven is, so this is happening live. So as the audio, you're playing it on the website, um, it's just kind of like, taking over the keyboard and in that little area, it starts going like E, 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 E. So if you take a look at, uh, you know, that, that uh, picture number seven, um, you see this is the result of the entire, of playing the entire, uh, uh, Michael's entire recording. So you've got just a whole sequence of E's and that's basically what the information that, that you pulled out. What I was looking for is exactly that, is like some type of like a, a visual representation. Whether there's any logic in this that we see as of yet, it's, it's irrelevant. It's just to be able to interpret the sequences of these. To terms. see if there's a pattern. Exactly, to see if there's a pattern. And really, you know, what I wanted to be able to identify was, is there a similarity between what you're getting on your radio and what anybody else is getting on their radios. So right now we've been able to verify that at least on two radios that we're getting these, these chirps and these sequences. So then when I uploaded... Uh, so okay, we're basically at the uh, top of the hour. So I'll tell you what, hold it there. My guests this morning are uh, two numerous dimensions. Just go to the website and you will see, of course, who we have on this morning. Uh, we're listening to Thomas and he is, look, ah, don't do that. Don't do that. He is doing the analysis in terms of frequencies, in terms of potential Morse, you know, fitting the, uh, the chirps to a Morse pattern. And uh, there's some pretty interesting stuff to listen to when we come back. And then, of course, we have David, who's done a completely separate analysis. And uh, we have about an hour to go through that and to cross-correlate and then tell you what we're going to do tomorrow night and what Maria, the intrepid lady explorer, is going to do next uh, in terms of Stonehenge 2. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
theothersideofmidnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, on this Sunday night, uh, Saturday night, Sunday morning. Same out of time sync myself here. So, um, What we're doing is we're going through now the first post-experiment analysis of Maria's intrepid adventure in the middle of the most horrible kind of weather in Stonehenge a week ago, Friday morning to send and receive in the middle of this tuned, ancient, hyper-dimensional transmitter receiver known as Stonehenge, filled with stones, with quartz, a torsion-active material that we know from contemporary lab experiments do weird things when exposed to changing torsion frequencies and then of course there's her watch which not since my experience with quartz clocks at coral castle several years ago with robin have i encountered anyone who experienced with a watch an incredible visible measurable slowdown of time which of course is reflective of a change in the fundamental frequency interaction of the quartz with the torsion field itself amplified in the center of the storm of the whirlwind created by triggering by turning on whatever it was that I measured decades before buried under the center of Stonehenge itself with a very clear very pure torsion changing frequency the pattern the first step in any science is indeed coming together elegantly coming together okay so Thomas pick it up there if you would please okay so I I sent you a link just over Skype um, I uploaded a, a section of your recording okay. so that people can actually listen to. Yeah, let me see if I can get this on the air. Um, yeah. So, I 
think this will this is it from a cloud. All right. Now this is chirps from that morning. Mm-hmm. Okay, yep. here we are. This is raw data, literally recorded digitally from the radio into the computer in a WAV file at a very high sampling rate, which means each file is like half a gig for about half an hour of data. That does not sound like Morse. Wow. Well, so here, so here's the thing. Like, what's what's cool about this is, and I've I've spent literally, uh, I've spent a few hours now, um, kind of listening to this. You kind of get familiar with it. I mean, it almost sounds like conversational. I mean, it just doesn't. It doesn't. Again, we're looking. I'm looking for some type of embedded because we've embedded, um, and we we embedded tonal frequencies so for people that are just kind of joining in what did we send out we sent out some tones um, that represented different mathematical ratios Um, there's a whole breakdown um, uh, that we provided in previous episodes of of what it consisted of but uh, we wanted to be able to put something out there that that contained information and mathematical information and we're able to do that by by specifically um, uh, playing different note sequences where the frequencies actually represent a specific mathematical ratio. Um, so because what we've received this time is more of a temporal dialogue versus a harmonic or frequency-based um, dialogue, my mind obviously gravitated over towards Morse. Again, as I said, it's not that I was expecting anything um, off of this other than... Well, it sounds like oh, a code okay. that we would recognize from exactly. the exactly. Lone Ranger. <laughs> so when when we adjusted the sensitivity um, on the International uh, um, uh, Morse Decode website, um, then it really started, there was a much, it was detecting a much uh, better variety um, in terms of the letters, which is what I wanted to see that there was a little bit more complexity because if it was just picking up a specific pattern, which was in the first analysis, just the letter E at different timing intervals, there was a letter E and then I think the letter T and the letter A popped up. Um, There's also one one I in there, but see the E's I'm unquestionably, it was giving something that that translator, that digital translator says is an E. Okay. The rest of it could just be noise, but why would you have now E when it comes to code breaking? Remember the first well, rule. If you look at, if, if hang you on, hang on, hang on. The first rule is E is the most frequently used letter in the English language. Therefore, if you if you take a, a, a code you don't know, you know there's a message written in code, but you don't know what kind of code it is. The the professionals look for the most frequently used symbol and they assign that to E. Well, you've got 99% E's with this automated robotic AI translator, which I find very curious because you know what E is? 
It's also the fifth letter of the alphabet. And we got fives out of David's frequency analysis, including the, the incredible Tonga explosion that looked coming out of the water like a huge die with five written plainly on the top. Okay, well, what the other thing that I want to point out is that we actually did send out the E constant ratio. It actually is... Oh, the base of, of the natural first. logarithms, E. We sent, we sent E and we sent E minus 1. But though both of those constants were sent and, and encoded in the original in what Maria broadcasted out. So now the thing is, is that when we did adjust the sensitivity, now there was, so as I'm watching this go through, and this is using the second recording, which was this is literally timed when Maria is in, in Stonehenge and she's been broadcasting and she's doing her thing. So I'm watching this go through because it just pops up, and it's not every single sequence of, of, uh, of these chirps, as we've been calling them. Um, but, you know, I would say it's picking up probably about four, 30 to 40%. When the sensitivity of this got adjusted for the algorithm on the International Morse Coders, now all of a sudden there was more letters, and I'm watching this spell out in front of me, and... I mean, take this for whatever it's worth, but there's a, that's where picture number eight is. So I'm watching these letters just come in one, one at a time. This is the result of analyzing the entire, the entire segment that was sent to me, okay? But there definitely seemed to be some kind of cohesiveness in that, the first, you know, 15, 20 sort of letters that came through to the point where it actually shocked me a little bit not because I think that this was actually a part of the message, but because as I'm watching this, and this is like the first time that I'm seeing something that I can relate to as like an English-speaking human being, right? But, you know, I see the number five come, and then S-E, and then H-A-S, has, and then like S-E-V-E, Eve, E, I-S, is, he, H-E, she, S-H-E, Five S five H W H H S H S I H H H A. When I saw that, I was like, you know, that could be like, you know, hydrogen, sulfur, hydrogen, iodine. Like, so you're just looking for patterns through here, right? But it was just what was really great about this is that I I saw that there definitely is enough variety. There isn't any cohesiveness to this, so there's no repeating pattern throughout the entire the entire sequence. I mean, and that's what you feel when you just listen to this. Um, but then to be able to kind of see... But wait, when you say there's no repeating pattern, I'm seeing repetitions of five. I'm seeing repetitions of certain letters. Even if they're not intelligible, there is repetition. Yes, but it's not It's not like it's not like S-E-H-A-S. No, no, this isn't the Gnostic Gospels, you guys. You're looking at Gnostic Gospels. Look at the Gospel of the Egyptians, and you'll see this everywhere. You just don't know what you're looking at. Well, wait, wait, wait. We're going to give you a whole 45 minutes because Thomas is just about wrapping up. I'm not going to be talking about this. I've got a lot of material. This is Gnostic. In the Gnostic Gospels, you're looking at um, very common tonal words here in prayers that are in the Gospel of the Egyptians, for example, which is not an Egyptian manuscript. It is a Gnostic Christian manuscript. So this is Aramaic, early Hebrew. 
some of these words like seva and uh, eve he is he she that's very english but they're yeah. the a a um haia haia this is all if you i mean i could spend a lot of time on this with thomas but hmm. there there is something in here well so i mean this was the... well wait 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 that's mind-blowing at several different levels and you guys this coming week before next sunday when we're going to do this again you need to put your heads together now that you've done your independent analyses because this is the closest thing we have to a plain text message that we can recognize not well, mathematics so, not geometry but but language yes exactly so what so here's the here's the intent is that right now like right now we have encoded using frequencies and tones and we did hear we did identify a tonal frequency and it happened to have been 432 hertz it's like in that range i mean it's in like i mean john go and take a look i can give you the time code you can go and take a look at that that point i mean it's there um the thing is is that seeing that there is a substance there's data here that we want to be able to now encode something to send out so what i think i would like to do is i would actually like to encode as part of the next um uh the next uh the broadcast out um maybe the morse alphabet or something something that's related to the the uh a base two number system <laughs> it looks like we ought to be sending them the damn gnostic gospels well, but it's just because what we're trying to do is we're trying to establish we want to if we're starting to exchange information in some type of a transient way, okay, what we need to be able to do is sort of like identify a way that we can you know, and we did this with the 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 tone that I put together, one of the parts of the tone, I very clearly put a frequency sweep sort of indicating, hey, this is the range, and all of the other tones that we have in that signal are all within that sweep. It's all within the 20 to 20,000 hertz um, hearable range. So we're kind of saying, hey, this is how we can listen, or hey, this is one way that we could sort of talk, and here is our alphabet, or here. Like, I mean, so as we refine the, the actual signal that's going out, and we're actually figuring out, um, you know, without a, a huge think tank, you know, group here, we're thinking of, of ways that we can in, encode um, pretty important mathematical constants or, or, or language um, uh, protocols. Well, given that, that they're giving us our own history, I think we should pay attention to the direction they're leading us, which if, if David's correct, and, you know, obviously David will have a lot more time tomorrow night to talk about analyses, I think we ought to send them some of the texts that they seem to be hinting that we should be looking at. Absolutely. So, I mean, we're going to refine. I think that, you know, it, it's kind of nice because the tone that we're sending out and and I think that it's for, for this kind of experiment, this is super, it's a super great way for us to be able to make it easy for somebody like Maria to be able to go to one of these sacred sites or for anybody else that's out there that's interested in what we're doing right now, if you live close to some type of a sacred site, you know, get in touch with us. We can provide you with sort of the, the basic protocols that we're utilizing for this. Um, I mean, again, I mean, we've wanted to kind of open source a little bit of this initiative because we are seeming to be getting um, um, these responses back. Anyways, just in, in conclusion from my sort of analysis, um, 
you know, we've opened up at least, at least in my interpretations here, we've opened up a different sort of uh, way of looking at this, um, which is a little bit more temporal based, time based, which I think is really interesting because all of a sudden, you know, we may be witnessing some form of like time dilation. Um, but you know what I, I'm going to continue to do as I continue to analyze you know the the, the information that we have leading up to uh, whatever the next experiment is going to be is to encode um, something you know related specifically to Morse. I mean it was just kind of a shot in the dark. I wasn't expecting anything there. Um, but the the other thing that we're going to try to do, and I've put an open call out there through uh, some different groups, but looking for uh, computer oh, programmers. Oh, wait, wait, wait. I am totally puzzled because you said at the top, this is not Morse code. Then you present us Richard? with – hang on. Then you present us with text, okay. which clearly shows we've got something coherent that is trans- no, there's a lot of coherency here. translatable through things- Morse. And it turns out to be Gnostic Gospels. It sounds to me, it looks to me like someone's trying to tell us something in Morse code. Okay, but here's the thing. We're dealing with right now kind of a hit rate that's about, let's say, 20 to 30%. So 20 to 30% of the chirps that we're receiving are converting to uh, a, a Morse understood uh, code. Right. Okay. So that means that 70% of these chirps that very much sound like there's... Maybe they're trying them. all different kinds of codes. I call that data. I call that data loss. So, Ron, you like, had something I, you wanted to add. Yeah, I think it's relevant right here. Sorry uh, to jump in. The uh, well, first off, that last clip you you played. You know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of the sound of the dimensional typewriter on Fringe. But that's neither here nor there. What I uh, the uh, there are other alternatives to Morse code, and they do get used sometimes. Uh, have you tried a three by three code? No, it's I just another way of doing the alphabet, and it's got it's. We need it a cryptographer. We need a professional cryptographer. Well, and that's what I was. So that's what I was. I was well, starting to mention is that I've I've put a uh, sort of a call out there uh, for people that have uh, some experience in either cryptography, uh, mathematics, uh, codes, um, but as well uh, any computer scientists out there that could help us. Um, either point us in the right direction of some type of a tool or API that we can use that will be able to take some type of audio and convert that to some sort of a discernible uh, information context, or if this is something that we could we could code. Um, Richard, as I said, we're I'm reaching out to some people that I know that may be able to assist like that. But now, again, there's also the Hemish Sync that the Monroe Institute developed in the 1950s where you play two different tones and your brain, they play a tone in the left ear and another tone in the right ear. And they found that the brain hears the difference of the two, a third tone. You mean like a beat frequency? Yes. Binaural beats. So I am doing um, a comparison between, I I have some of the uh, binaural beats from the Monroe Institute and, Hmm. Just, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've actually, a, I've done a the, quick I've thing. Done some, oh, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> okay, yeah, no, this is quick. Uh, a uh, a quick search shows that there's approximately 99 uh, apps available that do exactly what you're talking about. Translate one form of tap transmission into another. Because one thing we can probably rule out is a prison code. It's not just which is a 
you know, a two-tap <laughs> thing that they yeah. they do on pipes. Well, given that we don't know who we're talking to, it could be somebody in Folsom. <clears throat> Just kidding, yes. folks. Just well, kidding. it's yeah, Prison now. Planet, after all. Yeah, maybe yeah. they think that we're all we all are. But no, seriously, yeah, seriously, there are at, there are plenty of apps that will do exactly what you're talking about. So that's, yeah. that's one problem solved if you run it with well, Destiny. Because yeah. I, it, there's no reason why it has to be Morse code. They may have any sort of inscrutable reason for using one of the others. Precisely. And on the Morse code, the international Morse code decoders, there are actually different sort of, I don't know if it was like different systems of Morse that were used. There's different ones. Three by three and three by nine. They're not fancy names, but those are the only two that are, you know, fairly, well, not common, but there's. So again, again, I want to be able to, I want to be able to find something that again, we're trying, we can kind of sort of play around with and and try to calibrate sort of like tuning into a radio. But I just wanted to address something that John had brought up just because I think it's important to point this out. Um, So the, the, uh, the Hemisync, which is actually a program that I've done myself. um, uh, The, that's based off of stereo sound. And the important thing that we've got to remember here is that this is the what we're receiving um, is all mono. It's either acoustically coming out of one speaker, and the digital signal that we're coming out is coming out of just one channel. It's it's a mono signal. So, you know, like I don't know how you would be able to to kind of apply if there's something encoded into this. Um, sort of similar to like how a binaural sound works or like how the, the hemi-sync sort of binaural, you know, structure would work with a mono um, source signal. So I think it's important that we kind of keep this down to a level that we're, because again, like it's important that we concentrate on figuring out like what is, what is a type of system. As soon as we unlock, um, if we're able to see that there's less, uh, like data loss, because right now when I'm running it through this international uh, Morse decoder, I'm running through like a 19 minute or 20 minute uh, um, sort of clip and you're getting, you know, like whatever, however many letters are on, on, on what I put that. Right. So that's a, that's what I would classify as a high degree of data loss. So what we're trying to do is basically refine that listening process so that, you know, we're trying to capture as much of the information that's that's sort of there. But anyways, I mean, that's just kind of leading where where I think we should focus into the um, the encoding of the signal for the for any subsequent transmissions and some other things to consider on the analysis side. And I think with that, you know, I, I'm really actually anxious to kind of hear what David has uh, has come up because we haven't spoken about this. So I'm curious to have him jump and sort of go through his analysis. Well, I, I could go over your Morse code because I, I've read a lot of the Gnostic, I've read, studied the Gnostic Gospels for 25 years, and I've studied the root of words in different cultures and language. You can see the same word, but your, your consonants, your sharp sounds, and you, you remove your sharp sounds and you come to the, the core of the vowel toning of different words. And, and in your Morse code here, I mean, you've got the Hebrew, the Aia, Aia, you've got the, um, uh, the Esau, you, you've got a lot of um, root vowel tones to very profound words. So this really, you know, the spacing isn't correct because your Morse code decoder isn't spacing your words. 
it's just converting everything to to letters that that are phonetic. So this needs to get you get to need to get more of it because this is probably only a small amount of the of what you got converted. But I recognize a lot of these root words here. There's lots of words here I recognize, um, and it looks more like ancient Hebrew. It's the Aramaic is early Hebrew. So, you know, Jesus spoke Aramaic, which is early Hebrew, and, and it stems into a lot of Semitic languages and even some potential tribes that, that cross See, like even in, for example, because we're talking about Stonehenge here, there were hundreds of, cult, of uh, Celtic languages and tribes that were warring and fighting each other. They didn't have cohesion. They didn't have one language. And the Roman Empire was Latin, and then you had the, the Hebrew language was actually coming into formation, and their religion was coming into formation. It was not well-formed believe it or not, even at the time of Christ. There was a lot of fighting. There was a lot of different languages. So what I see so far in your item eight, there's a lot of root words here I recognize from... Uh, Hebrew doesn't have vowels. No, they're, no, ancient Aramaic Hebrew, read the Gospel of the Egyptians. I mean, the Tetragrammaton doesn't have vowels, but but the ancient Hebrew, like, for example, if you go to the Gospel of the Egyptians, there's an exercise of chanting seven vowels 22 times, and 22 divided by seven is pi, so that's a circle, (laughs) and then you see the E and the eh, and so E's can be E's, and they can also be eh. So there's a whole exercise in the Gospel of the Egyptians, and then later you'll see all these prayers in the Gospel of the Egyptians that are, that are in the ancient Aramaic language, and they, there's a lot of root words right here in the, in the Morse code. So, what well, would be yeah. fantastic would be to actually be able to put together an algorithm that would be this The shamanic word for God is Elah. So the, the, this, this, the, the, the Semitic word for God is Ira, which is Ia, 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 right? So look in your here. You can see Ia, Ia here. Ia, Ia, Ia. So you've got repetition. This is of so that. freaky. Years ago, you all recognize the name Stan Tenen? Oh, yeah. Okay, Stan and I have been Absolutely. friends for decades and decades. Um, back when we were looking at the Martian ruins, Sidonia and all that, and he's working on his. Uh, hyperdimensional physics decodings from Genesis. And then I find the physics at Sidonia and there's this cross correlation at one point, because he, he, he became an Orthodox, you know, Hebrew scholar to learn as much as he could about the most ancient sources of Hebrew. He consulted with a lot of rabbis and one day just over the hell of it. And we've got about a minute till the uh, bottom of the hour. He said, to one of the rabbis, he said, uh, my, my friend Richard wants to, me to ask you, could the Martians be Jewish? And the rabbi looked at him and said, why not? <laughs> well, I think if we're seeing if, I mean, if, it, it may okay. be beneficial to try to find, oh, end of the hour. <laughs> yeah, we're basically, we are basically at the bottom of the hour table. Let's hold it there. My guest this morning, too numerous to mention, go to the website. 
but they have names like Thomas and David and Maria and Ron and John and Keith is with us and uh, you just look up their backgrounds. Sterling Group doing something incredibly pioneering, never been done before, which seems appropriate to play this again as we take our break at the bottom of the hour. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. In your mind you have capacities, you know. To telepath messages through the vast unknown. Please close your eyes and concentrate with every thought you think upon the recitation we're about to sing. Calling occupants of interplanetary craft. Calling occupants of interplanetary most extraordinary craft. Calling occupants of interplanetary craft. Calling occupants of interplanetary craft. other side of midnight.com talk radio with pictures on demand liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought join club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment for your endeavors. Eight cents an episode, two and a half cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back on this Saturday night, Sunday morning here from the Land of Enchantment. Well, we're talking to someone, and we're talking to them through the most incredibly ancient, high-tech, solid state, maybe tens of thousands of years old terrestrial 
and interplanetary technology that one can imagine, which has very few overlaps and similarities to modern Hertzian radio EM transmission. But somehow we've hooked in to something and we're talking to someone. And the question is, are they in fact our friends or our ancestors? And transmit thought energy far beyond the north. You close your eyes, you concentrate, together that's the way. To send a message, we declare world contact Okay, we got a little less than half an hour. We'll pick this up tomorrow night. David will have as much time as he needs to amplify what he has been looking at. But the fact that you come up with something stunning out of Thomas's Morse code forays, the ancient Hebrew Gnostic Gospels. I mean, Jesus, you know what I mean. This is, this is non-trivial. Take it away, David. Okay, I'm going to read something in the Gnostic Gospels, which is the Gospel of the Egyptians is not an Egyptian Gospel, but it's it's actually called the um, the the manuscript of the Great Invisible Spirit, and and this is a very deep piece of work. But the first thing you come to are the seven vowel toning exercises where you tone seven vowels 22 times each. And seven times 22 is 154. And, of course, 153 is the resurrection number, the number of fish the apostles taught on the resurrection. But the first thing you do is you is you tone the I and the E sound and the O sound and the U sound and the E sound and the A sound and the O sound. So, again, you know, you're... They have seven vowels, we have five, and that's because A and A are, for example, two different sounds. But what struck me about Thomas's first, um, when he got all the E's, I said, I mean, that's, a, that's actually a chant in the Gospel of the Egyptians. You're going to chant E. And that's because the, the earliest, and this is a real journey to look for the way for example, Jesus would have even addressed the word God is probably something like Aio. Um, but it, it's there's a lot of debates and arguments about it because again the 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 sounds that they made and the words they made, for example, there's no J in Jesus, for example, because J is Latin. In the ancient Aramaic there is no J. There's no J, there's a Y. So the, the the Romans just turned it in Latin to ja, what was ya. And so Aio is actually a, this is actually, I'm reading this from 
the gospel of the Egyptians, it's I-I-I-E-E-E-E-E-E-O. This is actually a prayer. So when I saw all those E's, I went, wait a minute. And then when when he did the more sensitive translation, there's actually words for the way the the, the name of God was, was prayed to in this ancient, ancient dialect, which is like an Aio, an Aia, again, because an O can be an ah sound, and and this is actually in actually in the manuscript. So, again, I don't think this is mumbo jumbo at all. I, I think you're looking at very ancient language. In fact, I can even go to um, the name. Hey. Well, what's really bizarre, David, and everybody is we've we've sent out our own history, and they're reflecting Mm -hmm. back our own history in the monuments, directing us to, you know, the Great Pyramid, the Stonehenge, and now we're getting an off-the-shelf translator, which comes out of, you know, ancient Hebrew Gnostic texts, back to our own ancient history. It's like someone is trying to tell us Look to your own history for answers you are asking. And possibly who we're, in, we're getting messages from. Because again, you know, the, you, if you've got to go way back to when, when words were forming and then different cultures produce different sharp sounds. Like, for example, if you say Mexico City, Tenochtitlan, you take away the T, it's Enoch's land. And, of course, Enoch is the first biblical prophet mm-hmm. who flew in a crystal spaceship and probably came, if you read the book of Enoch, I mean, you can see he's getting into a crystal spaceship. And then when you come to Mesoamerica and Central America and the pyramids there, you'll see the same mass that you'll see in the pyramids in, in the Eastern world, right? So, again, if you take away those sharp sounds, you start to see the root or the core vibrational imprint of word, right? And word is logos, which is vibration. So it's really amazing that Thomas has done this. I just think it's incredible (laughs) because I can recognize so many ancient Obviously, you guys have a lot of conversations in the coming week because as we've been innovating all evening – Maria has got time again in Stonehenge for next Sunday afternoon. We're switching from morning to PM for for a couple of reasons. One is the you know the uh, Britain North American time zones, but the more important reason is did our transmissions and reception there at Stonehenge anti meridian before the sun crossed the meridian. It'd be very interesting to see. What the physics is when the sun is in the western part of the sky and descending as opposed to ascending in terms of Stonehenge, in terms of geometry. So we're going to do it on Sunday afternoon, British time, on the 20th, and we'll have a lot more on this tomorrow night. Uh, And we'll continue all of this with deeper analyses, and we will actually discuss some of the protocols we're going to go through terms of her revisit one thing is we're going to have to ask for much better english weather much better weather right 
Maybe you have to pray to God in English <laughs> for the weather. <laughs> okay. So, you know, the, the English language doesn't even form until around 500 A.D. So it's, it didn't even exist at the time of Stonehenge. But the numbers I get on Maria's radio, when I run it through my frequency... Okay, yeah, are, for people oh, who missed the, you know, early parts of this unending soap opera, describe how you are analyzing this that's different from John and Thomas. So what I do is I took Maria's recording and I run it, I play it back in front of my frequency meter. So if you go to my items on the other side of midnight.com, the first thing that happens, okay, it's the first thing that happens, I have to, I have to, I have to backtrack a bit because the, um, the satellites of Elon Musk went down February 4th. That that's actually when the solar flare hit. It was reported on on um, space weather, and they actually went down just after Maria did the the transmission. So is that a coincidence? I don't know. Hmm. So very interesting. So then I actually did my first recording here um, a couple of hours before she transmitted, and I get this number on my meter. 999.90. So just hold that number because that's in my item two. But the first thing that happened is I got both radios on here and they had been quiet for a week. So I, I have my radios on all night. There's, uh, there's nothing going on. No chirping in the middle of the night. Doesn't wake up my kids or me. So then when she actually transmitted my both radios, 432 and 144.1, are going crazy at the same time. And that has never happened, ever. And the 432 stops, and then the 144.1 continues, and the 432 then periodically comes in. And the first thing that blows my mind, I'm recording this, but then when... When I get Maria's recording and I download it, and there's two of them, and I play it back, the first thing I get in her in her radio sounds. Remember, I'm probably measuring the surface of the total wave depth of data in the in the form of different layers of frequency that Tom. Yeah, because it's getting. limited by the uh, characteristics of the speaker in the radio. Right. Exactly. So. But the fact that I get 999.90 on my radio two hours before demonstrates they, whoever they are, seem to see our intention because Maria gets the same number. Now, the fact that we get the same number, it's in, in my analysis of playing her. Oh, my. So what is that number? So if I take that number, and I was trying to figure out what is the encryption. I said it has to be pi because we're dealing with circles. Right. So, the, so that means the number they're giving me is actually the cir circumference. So 999.90 is the circumference divided by pi is 318.278 feet. Well, guess what? If you go on Britannica, the Aubrey holes, and I know this because I've been in Stonehenge, you can't get a string, you can't actually find a dead, dead center of Stonehenge with a radius and a string, and that's because your your stones are slightly offset diameters, and there's a reason for that very well expressed in Alexander Tom's research. But anyway, on Britannica, 
there are four measured diameters of the Aubrey holes, which is 270, 300, 330, and 360 long feet. So I have to convert my long feet to regular feet by multiplying them by 1.056. And I thought that 056 is mm. quite interesting. Yes. Right? So when I did the conversion, 999 divided by pi at 318 feet, and I take the 300 foot the 300 long feet times 1056, I'm at, I'm at almost 317 feet. So that means the circumference they gave me on the radio and Maria's radio are the circumference of one of the four diameter measurements of the Aubrey. Oh, Holmes. my God. Unbelievable. <laughs> I'm, that I'm getting I'm freaking believable. I'm on the other side of the freaking planet in the middle of nowhere. I don't have a city around me. I don't have a town. And I'm getting the circumference of Stonehenge Aubrey holes. Now, you have to remember, when I'm so picky with math, that the the way Stonehenge math was measured, nobody used lasers like they did with the Great Pyramid of Egypt. So you've got... No, these are big mechanical tape measures. Yeah, they're tape measures, and, and that's not good enough for me. So the fact that my accuracy on one of the four diameters of the Aubrey holes um, in, in from Botanica measurement, then again, though, there's a reason for those diameters being slightly varied of each other, and it's well expressed in Tom's book because it's not just about the moon. It's about where the stars rise on the horizon where they set the stones. I can clearly see that in, in Alexander's Psalm. So that's my item two. So what's amazing also is the night that we were doing this, I was watching Fringe, you know, this old episode of Fringe. And I'm watching this. You know, Robert and I used to love watching that. So I'm watching this episode, and all of a sudden, there's this disgruntled guy who's going to blow up this federal building, and the FBI agents decide that they they say, what frequency is he using to to press the transmitter to blow up the, the explosives in the basement? 432.5 megahertz, <laughs> they find out. And, they, and they're going to jam the frequency, jam it with the same frequency. And that made me you know, backtrack and think when Maria said that you know, at her 432 megahertz, it's like she got jammed, right? So what are the odds that I'd be watching this? And the episode is 43.2 minutes long. Again, 432. Very, very Holy thing. cow. Now, when I go to my item four, sorry, um, let me go back to your website because I'm actually on my emails to uh, – um, okay. Because this, this just gets more and more amazing. Because then I am going to get this other number. So and cool. Why, why is it that me on the other side of the planet, like I didn't think, I mean, again, I'm analyzing Maria's data now, not my own data. All I know is I get this same first number on my radio before she even transmitted. Two hours before. Two hours before, which establishes that this there's something going on with consciousness and intention. 
So now when I go to my item or four. Or time is not what we think it is. Right. Well, my item four basically is the same repeat, that Maria got the same number as me. So then we go to my item five, and this is utterly mind-blowing to see this number in Maria's it, it, uh, Hang on a sec, my, uh, David. It's even, it's even better because where did she start measuring? The Aubrey holes. They gave the you the hole. circumference of the Aubrey holes, exactly. the 56 that they directed from our earlier transmission in December. In other words, there's a coherent intelligence here, and who the heck are we talking to? Exactly. Now, the next two items, I'm going to do these fast because we don't have a lot of time left. But my item five on Maria's um, recording is the number 1510.71. Now, guess what? I divide that by pi, and I'm at the height of the Great Pyramid of Egypt. Accurate. Accurate. Now, remember what I said tonight. If you take... The, the, the height of the Great Pyramid of Egypt, 280 cubits times 2 is 560. That's 56 <laughs> times 10. So to me what this means, to see this number coming out of Maria's transmission, 1510.71 divided by pi, is equal to the height of the Great Pyramid of Egypt, accurate to 99.96%. And don't um, forget the Washington Monument. Exactly, because... You're not even. Go- I'm going to tell you something about the Washington Monument. It's going to blow your mind. But let me just wait, because because the fact that the good thing we have tomorrow night. <laughs> because I get so this is so trippy because her number is accurate to 99.96 percent the height of the Great Pyramid, or are they trying to tell us something new that our pi is slightly off, right? Meaning there are slight variances of pi just as there are slight variances to the speed of light, for example. Well, now that's interesting, David, because that falls out of the hyperdimensional model, which says that these constants are not constant, but determined by the geometry of 3D space. And you can have different geometries like Riemann geometry and others where pi is totally not 3.14159, et cetera, et cetera. Exactly. So, if I take the number 1510.71 divided by 7 over 22, which is the gospel of the Egyptians, because you do seven vowels 22 times, and now we see gospel of Egyptian language in Thomas's data, you get 480.68 feet, and again, remarkably close to the height of the Great Pyramid. Now, there are also many interpretations of pi. To be perfect, 1510.71 divided by 480.69 feet, the exact height of the Great Pyramid of Egypt, gives a 3.14279.4 as pi. So could they be telling us that, remember how Thomas got all those fives? There's all those fives in his, there's letters, there's words, and that you'll see the number five everywhere. Stonehenge at 56 Aubrey holes times five is 280 cubits which is the height of the Great Pyramid of Egypt in cubits. So I find that also fascinating. No, but here's even, we're on item six for me, and this number actually appears on my meter coming out of her transmission, and it's 1432.86, and that is the exact frequency of the royal cubit as a monopole. It's 1432. 
it's 143.2 megahertz. So mm. the, the fact that, that they're telling me, and again, this is accurate to 99.9 something percent, that they're giving me the frequency number with the decimal moved over, by the way, um, which is what they always seem to do as part of the encryption. Um, they're giving me this number. And why is this so significant? Because I brought this up. I brought this up that what if there's another frequency that's very close to the frequencies we're working with? Because we're working at 144.1 and 143.231 megahertz, which is the frequency of a monopole transmitter, the height of a royal qubit of 20.601 inches. And the number I get on Maria's uh, on the, on, from Maria's transmission is almost the same but slightly, slightly different could only mean that the speed of light is slightly, slightly different than the one I'm using to calculate that frequency. Mm-hmm. So what they're doing is they're actually correcting the speed of light by a tad. And I will get the frequency of a monopole whose height is a royal cubit. Now, I find this amazing. This number actually appeared several times in the transmission she received. So are they telling me a sort of confirmation that we should be listening at that frequency? And what is that frequency? It's, it's 143.231 megahertz. One so four, remember... We're which, in, which incorporates the 432? Exactly, it's one four three two. Exactly. You well then, I mean? well then, next Sunday afternoon, we need to give her a protocol which includes changing to that frequency, because unlike her hour for two hundred dollars in the sleet and the rain last uh, Friday, she'll have essentially unlimited time to do all kinds of things that she couldn't do on the first go round including starting long before she gets to the monument to make sure that it doesn't overload like it seems to have overloaded a bunch of stuff when she was inside. So I, I, I think this item seven is not written down wrong. I have to, I have to correct that with Keith um, in my email. So the, 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 the fact that these numbers are coming in and I'm, I'm reading her data now. I haven't checked all my numbers. I only know we got the first. The, the, or mine. The, or Michael's. Right. Or I haven't Keith. checked your data on the surface. Because, again, I, I'm, measuring, I'm measuring on the surface accurate to two decimals. So I think it's very consistent that the math in Stonehenge, they're showing us the connection to the Great Pyramid in Stonehenge. There, there's some importance there. That the well, two... we send out – we sent – David, I mean, that's the, – the crazy thing is, is we sent out Pi. We sent out the location of the Great Pyramid. That's part of the – it's part of right. the – no, that went But out. the math of the two correspond because the 56 times Phi is 280. That's the number of cubits in the Great Pyramid. And 280 cubits times 2 is, is 56 times 10. So the Aubrey holes are 56. But But what's – so there, there's there's a deeper connection between the two sites than we realize, and there may 
now even be um, a more phenomenal connection to the Pyramid of the Sun in Mexico, which happens to be 216 feet tall times two is 432, right? <laughs> times an octave is 432. So I've got to go into the Pyramid of the Sun in Mexico more because its name also, if I remove my sharp sounds, is very close to the name of the Hebrew word for God, the most ancient, you know, phonetic of the, of the Hebrew the ancient, the way they say the well, Jesus Well, with the Akatron, Robin and I were able to measure Stonehenge. We were able to measure from the top of the Pyramid of the Sun at uh, Teotihuacan and got stunning readings, which corresponded to the, the model, the predictions. So it's looking like, Maria, you were incredibly successful in waking up this network, and all we have to do now is you know, devote the rest of our lives to trying to figure out who the, is it that we're talking to. And can you believe she did this? She goes in on the rain and the sleet. She gets these tones coming back, and all these freaking numbers are in there. <laughs> and and what Thomas gets is a bunch of ancient dialects. And so we've got more data sitting on our laps than we can we can realize. Okay, well, so also I think it's like tuning into a radio, right? Like it's giving us clues. So if we can refine the the actual frequency that we need to send and listen in maybe, on maybe 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 we've just tapped into the ancient 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 history channel. Hey guys, I have to cut everything off because we're basically out of time. Uh I want to thank my guests. You can go and read their names on the website. Uh, Ron and Thomas and David and Maria and Keith and, and John, and I'm probably forgetting somebody. Michael was not with us tonight because he's doing a gig somewhere with some Native Americans, but he left us his data, and it's incredibly corollary to mine. So tomorrow night, we're going to pick up where we left off. We're going to go back to David for more analysis. We're going to have more on the ancient you know, um, Egyptian scroll, and we're going to decode more of the frequencies with John. And then we're going to talk about what we're going to do next Sunday afternoon in terms of a new protocol, a new set of transmissions with our intrepid explorer, Maria Wheatley, there once again at Stonehenge. And given what's happened so far, what could happen next? Well, you guys are going to have to tune in tomorrow night, same time, same bat channel. Remember, until then, third star from the left, straight on to morning. Good night, everybody.